Good morning. It's Thursday, January 19th. We're going to get started. We do have a quorum. Uh, we have uh, Roberta Pinero on uh, Zoom, and Commissioner Hill is here. This is the January 19th, 2023 uh, session of the Planning Board. Uh, it's a significant date. The federal government is at its borrowing limit. It's about uh, uh, New Year's Eve if you're celebrating the Chinese calendar, and we wish everybody a healthy and prosperous New Year. Uh, that's coming up on the 21st, I think. But more importantly, on January 19, 1956, the Montgomery Sentinel highlighted the upcoming world premiere of the short film Warning Red at the Veers Mill Theater. The nationwide released film was part of a series of U.S. federal civil administration defense productions that educated the public on supposed actions that would minimize the effect of heat and radioactive fallout following a nuclear attack. Most of the sequences of, the, of a suburban father searching for his family were filmed at the National Civil Defense Training Center in Olney, and the Sandy Spring Theater Group comprised most of the cast. Um, this being 2023, I'm happy to report that no one has su suffered heat and radioactive fallout in Olney. So apparently the film worked. We're happy for that. Um, okay, um, enough of the, of the uh, easy stuff. Uh, we have preliminary matters. The first is uh, uh, the resolution uh, to affirm our decision on Remembrance Park preliminary plan uh, number 120210150. Um, in addition to our resolution, we had asked for a letter go uh, from the planning board to, um, uh, to DP to uh, look for some more nutrient monitoring in light of this uh, um, a green burial cemetery as a novel event in the county. Um, I, I think that will be forthcoming, but in the meantime, I'll look for a motion to approve the, um, the, the resolution. Move approval for the resolution as adopted in the number that you referenced. And I second it, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, uh, no further discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right. Three to zero. This is very exciting. All right. Uh, we now have uh, uh, some regulatory extensions. One is Battery Lane uh, Site C, Site Plan Number 8, 202230. Uh, this is a case where where the paperwork is in, but our, our staff still needs time to review it. We also have another extension, All Souls Cemetery Preliminary Plan Amendment. Um, uh, again, this is where uh, uh, final documents are uh, going to be submitted uh, shortly. You know, uh, I get the cemetery works on its own time. What can I tell you? Um, 
I'll, uh, uh, the, any discussion on these extensions? Yeah, I do have a question about the cemetery extension, and I just want to make sure the applicant um, asserted that this was all sort of on staff uh, waiting for that, and I just want to make sure staff agrees with that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good morning for the record, Sandra Pereira, regulatory supervisor with Up County. Yes, that is correct. We have received all the materials and we're all in agreement that uh, we can move forward. Okay, in, in the interest of sort of granting the smallest extension necessary, um, if we're waiting just for the formulation of the staff report, is 30 days adequate to do that instead of three months? Um, because drawings were just submitted yesterday um, and by, by law we have 65 days from final submittal of drawings. We would like to leave that amount of time just just in case, and of course, if the, everything is ready before then, we would we would proceed. That's that's our intent. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'll entertain a motion to approve the the two extensions. Uh, Mr. Chair, I'd like to move that we approve the two extensions. Do I hear a second? I'll second. We have a motion and a second. Uh, uh, Ms. Cherie Branson has joined us. Uh, so we now have four. All those in favor of, uh, of, of approving the two extensions, say aye. 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 Opposed? No. Zero. Okay. We're good. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we're on item four, a roundtable discussion with the parks director, who's way over there. <laughs> Good morning, Planning Board. Mike Riley, the Parks Director, here with my biweekly uh, report. If I could get the AV folks to get my screen up, I've got just, uh, I think, five slides for you this morning. There we go. As you know, we just celebrated uh, Martin Luther King Day. <coughs> And every year we have a series of volunteer opportunities for the MLK uh, Day of Service. It's actually more, more like a, a week of service uh, where we have programs, but uh, so they're still ongoing, but the bulk of them happened uh, throughout the weekend and on Monday. And uh, you see some very impressive stats here as we're not even done with the program. We had both... Uh, park and stream cleanups and weed warrior events in our parks, a total of 22 events. Uh, so far, more than 1,000 volunteers, more than 2,000 hours of volunteer service. Uh, this is a good news, bad news thing on the trash. The good news is that our volunteers work very hard uh, and remove a lot of trash from our parks. The bad news is there's a lot of trash in our parks. But uh, we certainly appreciate the great work of our volunteers helping us keep our parks uh, clean. And we'll continue to brainstorm with the Department of Environmental Protection and others about how we could possibly reduce the amount of trash that ends up in our parks. And generally, when we report volunteer hours, we do use a formula to monetize the value of the work if we had to pay for it. As you could see, just throughout the weekend, it's a, a big number, over $67,000 um, uh, of, of service. Uh, th that's a nice number, but that's, that's not really the big deal. These, uh, the, it's, these the volunteers really care about our parks. That's why they're out there. They want to give back. And also, these volunteers tend to be 
uh, some of our best advocates. When we need advocates to advocate on our budget or to support us on legislation, they're the same people we go to and ask them to speak up and uh, tell our elected officials why the parks are important to them. So I have some staff here I want to recognize and thanks for this good work. I'll flip to uh, some pictures will I, of, uh, that they provided me from uh, just a few of the cleanups. But starting with our Division Chief of Public Affairs and Community Partnerships, where the volunteer office is uh, held, we have Christy Williams here with Wave Christy. And then running our volunteer service office is uh, Molly Glant with her trusty uh, helper, Lynn Vismera. And then uh, two people who uh, spend more time out in the field than they do out in the office, um, actually making sure the work is done. We have Val Valeria Espinoza, who oversees our stream and uh, uh, cleanup efforts, and then uh, Corinne Stevens, who oversees our Weed Warrior program. So they do great work, and our volunteer uh, corps keeps growing every year. And uh, this, is, this is just you know, one of the, I think, programs that really shines the light on how many of our community members care deeply about our parks. Just one quick question. If we're monetizing the, the value of volunteers, can we be accused of child labor violations? Well, <laughs> when we have the volunteer appreciation events and I get to give my little speech, I always do tell them the check's in the mail. <laughs> thank you. Did you have something? Yeah, I just wanted to thank staff for their leadership on all this. It's a great, great performance. So just a few more topics. Um, so this is the beginning. I, we just kicked off our summer camps, uh, uh, registration, I should say. And I'm sure some of them filled up on the first day by, six, uh, by, by 7 a.m. on the 17th, unfortunately. A few of them probably filled up, but uh, registration is ongoing. We have a variety of great summer camps, and you see the info here. Uh, I just wanted to do a little bit of an of infomercial here for anybody who's listening, uh, that there's still plenty of opportunity to register for camps. And also just to alert the board, uh, one of my favorite um, uh, things the Parks Foundation does, among many things, is they have uh, what's called the Mary Wells Harley Dream Camp Scholarship Fund. Mary Wells Harley, of course, was a former uh, planning board commissioner and vice chair of the planning board and before that she was the park and recreation director for a long time over at uh, Prince George's Department of Parks and Recreation and there is a scholarship that uh, helps send uh, kids uh, to our, our camps. Uh, one of my favorite things to donate to every year and um, we uh, were really proud to be able to send some kids to camp every year who otherwise may not be able to afford to be there. So one of the things that's keeping my team very busy, uh, generally we start this in November each year and it's ongoing now, is uh, probably about seven years ago, we decided it was uh, really important to be proactive approaching our state legislators about uh, how they could support the parks with uh, what are called bond bills. And, and, and it's interesting, one of the reasons we started to be more proactive uh, wasn't wasn't necessarily that we we were targeting the money it's that what was happening is third-party entities were approaching our legislators about projects they thought would be good to do and they would need land to do them they would identify parkland and sometimes we would find out about the project after the legislators supported money for it and it would put us in an incredibly awkward position if we were not 
supportive of the project or if it wasn't a priority for us. So that's kind of the thing that really opened our eyes. Uh, and uh, we've had a lot of success, particularly uh, last year we had bond bills in, in every district except one. And uh, it, it's accomplished a lot. It's brought in a lot of money to the parks, millions of dollars uh, per year. Uh, and uh, more importantly, it's allowed us to build really good relationships with uh, the members of the Montgomery County delegation of the General Assembly uh, because we get to work with them. We describe the projects. They choose which projects they really think are important for their district. And then, of course, two or three years later, after they get the money, we invite them to a ribbon cutting and uh, celebrate the, you know, what, what we've done with their project. So this year is just like last year. We've approached every district. Uh, most of them are supporting bills. Some of them are supporting multiple uh, park projects. We do expect there to be a significant amount of money uh, in Annapolis uh, this year, just like there was last year. So hopefully by the time we reach the end of the session in uh, uh, March or April, we'll have good news to report of uh, a lot more money coming out of Annapolis for park projects. And that, I, I, meant, I shouldn't have ended on the bad news. I should have ended on the good news. I should have flipped these two slides. This is the bad news. Um, the, the term affordability PDF is not very intuitive, but uh, the county executive just released his uh, recommended uh, six-year CIP. This is the off year of the biennial CIP. So we did not submit a new CIP. As a matter of fact, we had no amendments or no uh, changes, really, in this off year. We didn't ask for an additional penny. But uh, as OMB described to me and the budget team uh, last year, there are a lot of needs, a lot of pressures, some revenue. Uh, there's some revenue shortfalls on some of the uh, revenue side, and there's a whole bunch of expensive projects competing on the expenditure side. So they decided that they would trim our budget to the tune of $1.5 million. It's over uh, each of the last three years of the, of the budget. Uh, so that would be 20, 28, I think 28 through 30, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, what we do in this case is we will come to you either next week or the week after. We'll tell you the impacts. If we take that reduction, we'll put a face on it. We haven't done that yet, but we'll come and say we believe if we have to take these cuts, these are the projects will be impacted. And uh, generally what the board will do if they agree with our recommendation is they will refer to them as non-recommended reductions. And we'll go to the council and just say, council, it's your call. If we've got to take these cuts, these are the projects that will be adversely impacted. Or if you don't want to impact these projects, please find a way to restore this money to our budget. So we'll do that uh, either next week or the week after. And then following that, there will be uh, CIP public hearings in uh, uh, the first week of February generally. And then our first committee work session on the CIP will be uh, e probably in March or April. So that's all I have for this morning. Happy to answer any questions. Just, just a back of the envelope estimate at what percentage is that? Uh, it's relatively small. It is, uh, I should know the number of what our six-year CIP is. Uh, it's not coming to me, but it's it's like 1% okay. or less. It's not a huge cut. Okay. Yeah, and I suspect the bids you're getting on 
on their new projects are higher than well, you anticipated, the, too. The, what's interesting is OMB was gently explaining to us why they trimmed us in a year that we weren't asking for more money and all the other agencies were, was that the other agencies are saying there's inflation in transportation and school projects. One of the, that was one of the reasons they needed to come up with more money. There's no, there's no inflation in the stuff you all do? Yes. I, yeah, I, I'm just amazed. I, How do you do that? Can you go to the grocery store with me? They, they don't put out a bid is how they <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're, we're not buying eggs in the parks right now. <laughs> the way they are. All right. Uh, I, thank you. Uh, oh. oh, I'm sorry. Uh, 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 Commissioner Panero. Yes, um, thank you for your presentation. This is very interesting. Um, now, the uh, CIP, is that something that is across the, I think you answered the question already, but let me just um, you know, get, uh, be sure to confirm your answer. It's, it's, it's a budget cut that the council is asking across the board for every agency or just for the parks department? Uh, this is just the Parks Department. We, I have not yet reviewed the recommended CIP for the other agencies, uh, but uh, we work, uh, the, the county executive releases his recommended budget every year uh, by January 15th if it falls on a weekend. Oh, so it's it's okay. a little bit later. So this is the county executive's recommended budget that just oh, I see. published, and the council gets to make the final decisions. So that's... That's why you, when we get yeah. cut by the executive, typically, we will, the executive doesn't say what's cut. He doesn't say it's, you know, Project X that I'm cutting. He just says, I'm going to cut so much money out of your budget. You, Park and Planning Commission, get to figure out what's impacted. And then we go to the council and we tell them, and we typically call it a non-recommended reduction because we don't want to take see. cuts to our budget. And sometimes the council is able to restore that money, and sometimes they're not. But it's not going to affect your operating budget. This is all no. capital. No. This is okay. all capital. Okay. okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Commissioner Branson? Yeah. Um, I don't want to talk about the budget because I think we can probably, I, I, I think it, it, this is something that's probably going to work out. I, I'm crossing my fingers. Um, who wants to cut the parks? I mean, it's just like Grinchish. Um, but um, <laughs> the um, what I do want to do is talk about the summer camps, and um, and definitely want to uh, join you in the infomercial um, because the summer camps um, that you all run are really valuable. I had my um, my son who is now in his mid twenties went to one of your summer camps that had to do with, um, I don't know what you all called it, but I, I think it was something like survival skills, where he had to learn how to uh, do a tent and, um, you know, make a fire. And, and it was, um, it was, um, I, I enjoyed him being tormented for that week and um, coming out of middle-class comfort into the wilds uh, of, uh, I think it was uh, Brookside Forest. <laughs> um, and then later, um, when he was a teenager, um, he actually had a job with you all. Um, 
uh, running uh, something, I don't remember. Um, but it was in a summer camp. Um, but um, so yeah, I, I would strongly, you know, recommend for, you know, every working parent deals with the problem of summer. You know, what do you do in the summer? Um, and it can be such a struggle. I don't think people who have, um, who have not experienced it can really understand what it's like jockeying to try and figure out, you know, what camps to go to and, 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 the, and the camps you all run um, have always been affordable um, and I really wish there uh, were more. Um, um, and I hope there's information about the uh, Mary Wells Harley Scholarship Program on the, on the website that people can easily access and donate to. Um, so that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you for your report. And I, I announce right now my availability for summer camp since I'll be relieved of my current obligations by that time. Um, okay, I, th I think that concludes this item. We're ready to move to item five. Do we have to wait to move to item five? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 Commissioner Pinero, I missed you. Yeah, I just wanted uh, uh, on uh, what Commissioner Branson said. I was kind of interesting about that scholarship program and um, I'd like to encourage, I, I don't know how it's funded, but um, when I was at the board of HOC of the housing agency, we also started a scholarship program for summer uh, camps. And um, what we would do is we would um, we would go and and um, ask the private sector, particularly developers, whether they wanted to contribute. And I remember past uh, a past uh, planning commissioner, Norm Dreyfus did contribute quite a bit of money for that. But, you know, something that we would do is we would recognize them, uh, particularly when they, when we had either developers or people from the private sector contribute money to the uh, summer camp, to the scholarship program. We would have an activity and many of them would, would love that. So I just wanted to add that to the... Uh, and, and I'll add that the... To the presentation. I'll add that the planning board is going to have an ethics discussion next week, at, at which yeah, we, that's something to uh, think yeah, about. Right. It's a, yes. It would be a problem here on soliciting, but uh, the, the world knows it's available. We look forward to more contributions. Okay, uh, are we now we're ready to go to the next item? Yes, I think so.
Good morning. It's it's still uh, uh, January 19th, 2023. We're on item five of the planning board agenda, the uh, uh, joint state uh, transportation policy letter, uh, and uh, the staff is trying to ask for our recommendations on that letter. And from there, I'll turn it over which way to you. Well, please get your mic on if it's... Thank you, Mr. Chair. For the record, Steve Aldridge from the, the Countywide Planning and Policy Division. Joining me today is Zach Dreyer, who's the planning associate who's been with us about six months, previously was at MDP, uh, and Dave Onsbacher, also from Countywide Planning and Policy. Um, also joining us online is Andrew Bossy from Montgomery County DOT. Um, and the, the draft letter that we're going to be reviewing today uh, it, it was, you know, sort of initially drafted after some discussions with council staff and Montgomery County DOT staff uh, of moving to, um, you know, to, to develop a letter to, to forward to the council and to the county executive. Um, but this was our opportunity to add recommendations to add to the letter and to bring it to you folks to get, you, to get your, um, your input and, and recommendations. Next slide. Uh, I do want to um, to note and, and really give my apologies. We have a couple corrections in the staff report. Um, one is that the attachments weren't numbered, so there might have been some confusion. Um, the first letter uh, following the staff report is the draft, the draft priority letter, which is for review. You'll notice it doesn't have signatures and says secretary to be determined, followed by a 2020 priority letter, uh, which is signed, and a and this is a mistake too, a, a 2022 update letter, uh, which was really a, a letter to basically say, this isn't our full letter, but we have some issues and here are our issues. Um, so that was submitted to, um, to MDOT in 2022. Um, finally, at the end of the, um, the entire package, there's a matrix mislabels attachment A. Uh, it's actually attachment D. So again, my apologies. And in future staff reports, we're gonna, we're gonna label the attachment on you know, on the top of every single page, so it's crystal clear, um, and hopefully we want to want to have this problem again. Uh, I also wanted to correct that we had an incorrect street name for one of the projects that that is identified in this staff report. It's Maryland 198 Spencerville Road. Um, that road actually changes name quite frequently through that section. It's actually Old Columbia Pike, which is the section that is being d uh, designed and being actually being evaluated now by M.SHA. All right. Um, I did want to um, point out that this process, uh, while it's pretty standard, um, this year the, the county is moving pretty, pretty rapidly to um, finalize this letter. There is going to be a public hearing next week on the 24th, uh, followed by uh, a, a T&E committee session on the 30th, um, and then fi you know, finally a council vote. Um, so I'll, I'll, with that, I'll, I'll go through the presentation and uh, tell you how we put this together. So this is something that's done, um, you know, it could be done every year, but periodically, um, you know, the, every, everyone in the county gets together and says, I think it's time to submit a new priority letter. Um, and they start working on a draft. Uh, in past years, uh, the draft has actually come from DOT. Um, this year it was decided it should come from planning staff and then move forward. Um, and so the planning board participates in this process by providing comments to the county executive and the county council. And in addition, um, the legislative delegation is informed or consulted as part of the whole process. 
the idea is to really make it the priorities for the county for um, for funding from MDOT um, clear. What's what are the top priorities? Um, you know, per this is this is based on um, you know some legislation. Um, the, the letter is every county submits uh, is is given the opportunity to submit a letter, and it's tended to focus on realistic funding availability and um, MDOT encourages multimodal submissions, which for us that's definitely not a problem. And as you'll no notice in our letter, we've we've covered each of the modes um, quite uh, quite significantly. Um, this process is is one of, but not the only method that the, that you know Montgomery County will have to um, provide input to MDOT uh, on this process. There's another process called Chapter 30, um, which now Montgomery County DOT is primarily working on, which is a um, a one-stop portal. Um, you input the top project and you fill out an application, and uh, I can I can provide you more information on that if you're interested. Um, it's much more focused on projects that are ready to go to design, um, and and to be fully funded in the CTP. So it's really the next step after the priority letter. Next slide. So the priority letters are are due to MDOT on April first. Um, and if you notice in our past letters, we haven't really been good at that. We submit it whenever we get around to it. And I think this year, I think we're finally getting ahead of the ball. Um, so we're, we'll definitely have it in by April 1st. Um, you know, as I said, we, we submitted a detailed joint transportation letter in 2020. And then in 2022, um, we submitted a, a fairly short letter that really um, raised a couple concerns, some of them COVID-related, some of them managed lanes or opportunity lanes related, um, that funding wasn't uh, evolving as had been promised, and so concerns were raised in that letter. Um, and I think some of, those, um, some of those concerns still exist, and as you'll see in our draft report, um, the, the draft report that we've developed is sort of a, um, a combination of starting with the 2020 letter and updating it, but also making sure to include the concerns from the 2022, um, what I call an amplification letter. Um, so again, as I said, this is this is really seen as the ideal time to update the priority letter uh, with with um, you know a new governor, um, a reelected county council, and a reelected county executive. Um, this this is really the ideal time to make sure that our priorities are are set. Uh, of what you know, we would like from the state um, on the transportation side. Next slide. Um, and I think I said all this, so I think I'm just I think we'll just go past this. <laughs> so um, within um, the draft letter and also the 2020 priority letter, um, the the recommendations have been organized into eight emphasis areas. Um, and these aren't presented in priority order, uh, and there, maybe there could be an argument that they should be. Uh, I think very specifically in the last letter, the intent was, um, uh, I think the intent was to de-emphasize um, road projects, which is why they're more towards the bottom. Um, but I, I'm not sure that that's, um, that's intentional um, today, and I think that's just the way it's, it's set up. Um, you know, the county does have a big focus on Vision Zero, which is why that, that one's squarely on top. Uh, so for each of these areas, uh, when we identify projects, they, they are identified in priority order, uh, and we'll number them and, and discuss them in order. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the priorities between each one 
um, haven't been set because one, uh, many of these projects they're going to come from different funding sources, um, and so you know I think in terms of the county's allocation, it's it's more than likely to come to from some very specific locations such as the state highways program, state highways funding, uh, maybe even the bus rapid transit um, programs. Um, some of these other are are really commitments that. Um, MDOT has provided in some way, shape, or form to the county before, and it's really just emphasizing, here's what we need today. Next slide. So um, I can go through each of the topics, and I guess, uh, the, I guess I'd have a question for, for you, Mr. Chair, and for the board. Um, uh, what I've done is come up with a presentation that summarizes all the recommendations um, and I can start by showing um, each of the emphasis areas and the projects, and if there are questions about individual projects, we can then go to additional slides to discuss that. If there are no questions, um, then we can move on to the next subject. Okay. So first, on Vision Zero implementation, um, much of the request in, in this section is really just a continuation. Um, you know, uh, Montgomery County it was the first county in the U.S. that had a Vision Zero program. Um, and now uh, SHA is also, you know, the, the state is a Vision Zero state. Um, and so we're really just a, a re-emphasis that, you know, uh, imp improving funding to help us, um, you know, build more pedestrian and bicycle safety improvement projects. Um, and I will note that on many state highways, often the, um, the agency that does the design and um, is, is actually a Montgomery County DOT, not the state. Um, but you know, some of those projects can be done with state funds and assistance. We're happy to do that. Um, and you know, the DOT and SHA work very well together. Um, the second bullet really is, is um, maybe an example of where there had been a little bit, of, a couple hiccups. Um, this process continues. Uh, but what uh, I think what DOT has found is that some projects um, take uh, much longer than they probably should. Um, and I think if they were DOT-only projects, they would go through faster, but because they're, uh, because they're DOT projects working with SHA review, sometimes they take a, an awfully long time and there's some problems. So just urging them to try to... Um, Figure a way to expedite the project, certainly working with the district and, and, and many of the offices uh, back in Hanover and Baltimore to try to um, smooth through projects that are Vision Zero related um, faster. So the next slide, uh, this is a major piece of the priorities letter is the bus rapid transit implementation. Um, we have eight projects listed. These, are, these projects are actually listed in priority order as uh, agreed to by the council. Um, and many of these have been uh, requests that have been made in the past. Um, most of these are also in the, um, what is attachment D, um, but labeled attachment A, um, the top 100 transportation priorities, which was um, identified by the planning board back in 2021. Um, and I would say that uh, all of these um, are on that top 100 list um, as well. Um, and I guess I would ask if uh, anyone has any questions about any of these projects. Uh, just, just a note for everybody that this also conforms to how these relate to the county CIP 
as well and how they fit that way. Commissioner, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Commissioner Panera. Yeah, I just have a question. I noticed that you have a number of uh, projects under BRT, but then the um, zero vision implementation, um, there's no, I mean, I you just I, I saw I saw that it was in 2020 it was a top priority and it's a top priority now. I know for the council it's a it's a really important initiative, but I'm wondering whether there's any shovel ready projects that uh, may be listed, or do we want to keep it very general as it is right now? And you know, I just like to get your opinion on that. Thank you. That, that's a great comment. Um, many Vision Zero projects are small projects, and they're usually what we call level of effort projects. They're in, they're in a work program like the sidewalk program or a street lighting program mm -hmm. or traffic signals. Um, so they, they don't stand out uh, as easily as a project that gets its own um, place in the CIP um, budget. Um, there certainly could be an argument to have some dedicated Vision Zero funding sources, um, you know, and that that's probably more of a discussion for the the CIP review. Um, but um, you know, I, I think that the county does invest a lot in Vision Zero, um, and um, you know, we could we could try to get you more information of of what those projects are, because um, they're you know, uh, Montgomery County DOT does have a rolling list of projects that are being implemented as part of the Vision Zero Action Plan. I see, but they're, they're generally, what you're saying is that they're generally small projects. They're not, for example, if you have like a pedestrian bridge, would that be considered a, um, a Vision Zero project? Uh, potentially, and, and, that, and that definitely would be a project that you would see in the CIP. Um, but also I, I would say that um, some of the larger ticket items that are Vision Zero related are going to more likely be fully funded by the county itself, as opposed to asking MDOT for the funds. Oh, I see. Okay. Thank you very much. Commissioner Hill. Yeah, first a question, which is, um, I understood that in the BRT system that the Route 29 corridor was supposed to really be the priority, and that may be the explanation for phase two on number four here. But um, I was a little surprised when I first looked at this list that, that, that Route 29 wasn't on the top of it. And I just, I'm probably out of date, and you can explain that. <laughs> Certainly. Well, I mean, um, you know, US 29, the flash system is in place, um, but there was a lot of study that really only concluded fairly recently, um, which, uh, you know, the county council endorsed the median, um, the median bus BRT concept. Um, and so that is, um, I think it's almost not, quite as ready as the other projects to move forward, whereas um, Montgomery County DST has been working very diligently on the, M, the Maryland 355 Central BRT project and the Veers Mill Road BRT project. And actually, I will mention that you will be seeing a mandatory referral for the Veers Mill Road BRT probably in March. So, um, and so that, you know, sort of explains that. I, I think you probably could make a very good case that maybe US 29 could be above 355 North and South. Um, I think that's a very, uh, a very valid comment. Okay, um, we'd be happy to make that recommendation. Uh, David Onsbacher, just for the record. Yeah. Um, this is, what this is reflecting is, and I think uh, Chair Zions 
touched on this at the beginning, but this is reflecting the current priorities of the council as approved in the CIP. And again, we can certainly make, yeah. make the comment, but Maryland 355, Yours Mill Road, they're a lot further along in, in the design process at this point. Is, is, um, this says US uh, 29 phase two. Is phase one considered the flash yes. system that's in place? Okay. Um, and these last two comments are just my preference um, because I'll, I'll express it, take the opportunity, which is I have never been particularly in favor of MD 355 South. Um, it strikes me as a redundant transit um, you know, facility. Metro was within you know, a couple hundred feet. Um, you get south of Strathmore, it's literally right on top of it. And um, for a BRT, it strikes me that if you have something in that corridor, to be multimodal, you have to line up the stations with metro stations. And that just enhances the redundancy. And you can't have many more stations on a BRT or it stops being rapid. Um, so that's something I've always just, I, whenever I'm talking to the transportation folks and that comes up, it's sort of like, I just don't get that one. I understand the idea of increasing the capacity for sort of North Bethesda um, utilization. I think that there's a statement in here about unlocking the potential development for North Bethesda. I understand that as an economic development argument, but I don't see it as a particularly good transportation argument. And um, there are certainly multi-jurisdictional problems with the county enhancing metro, but that seems to be the solution to me, right, is let's get metro that already exists there working better instead of spending the millions of dollars. That particular corridor is going to be expensive because of the property values, um, and I just don't see that as a good utilization. So that, that's just an opinion to express. Um, and then I also, and, and this is based on, I think, what may be rising public impatience, and I'm going to go back to the corridor city transit way, which is kind of permuted into the, I think, the I-270 transit corridor connectors here, which is the bottom of the list here. But I, I kind of interpret there's a lot of impatience with the fact of what's happening with that, right? It's been like 20 years since that was that um, was really brought up, and particularly later in this session, we'll be talking about the Greater Seneca planning and the idea of enhancing the, the, the medical technology component of that. And it seems to me the transportation, the ability of people to get there is really important. And I'm, I'm a little disappointed to see that that's the last priority here. Um, and w just one more comment, too. I am glad to see the priorities of what I consider to be BRT lines that are not redundant. So, you know, the ability to come down Veers Mill Road and connect the central, you know, part of the county to Wheaton, where we are now, strikes me as something that we just don't have. Or, you know, the central and the northern parts of the MD-355 so we can sort of slingshot people out of the metro station around. Um, Shady Grove strikes me as, yeah, that, that really, it, it's a new route that is in service now, and that I think, I'm glad to see that as a priority. So, my comments. Great, thank you. I will mention for the, the I-270 transit corridor connector, Montgomery County DOT um, has plans to, to move forward in the, the planning and design for, I guess, the first phase. Um, so, you know, we might have more information to talk about when we review the the transportation CAP, I was listening to Mike talk about um, the county exec's recommendations. We're, we're going to be doing the same thing, and we'll be coming back to you on February 23rd um, to review the county exec's recommended budget on transportation projects. Commissioner Branson? Yeah. Um, first of all, let me just say that um, uh, as far as the presentation is concerned, a, a map would be really helpful with, with all this, just just my own visual thing. Um, because it seems to me that um, what's, 
what's going on here is uh, BRT implementation in the most Oh, that's great. Um, in, <laughs> yeah, now, now I understand it. Um, no, um, in, in the um, most traveled um, commuter areas in various parts of the county, okay, and, and which is why I'm bringing up New Hampshire Avenue, right, because New Hampshire Avenue, um, and, and I'm, well, New Hampshire Avenue, Randolph Road, Route 29, are really the the big deal in East County. I mean, you just you know you you can't move if they don't move. Um, I have definitely seen the implementation of the flash on twenty nine. I'm wondering what what the timeline is for New Hampshire Avenue. If you know that, because I'm just not seeing these things. I'm not seeing these things connect up at all. I'll try to speak to that, and maybe Dave Hansbach will add some information. Um, right now, MCDOT um, has been working on, uh, I guess, the initial planning for New Hampshire Avenue, and, and the idea is that this would start, you know, in the Colesville area, um, and then travel down New Hampshire Avenue to the, the, the District of Columbia line, potentially extending to Fort Totten. And one of the um, one of the recommendations from the draft priority letter is that that this is the ideal corridor to be a state-led project. Uh, one, because it borders two counties. Um, the economic development potential benefit for the, the, the White Oak Science Gateway area and FDA uh, is, is certainly tremendous. Uh, connecting to the red line, um, you know, and um, I, you know, I, I think there are a lot of really good things about this project. Uh, it is low in the list, and I think that um, because some of the more immediate priorities have been um, pushed for different reasons. And I, you know, I think the 29, the U.S. 29 BRT was considered a significant first effort on BRT in East County. Um, and so I think the, the focus from the, you know, the policymakers has shifted a little bit more towards trying to work on helping, um, you know, uh, reinforce North Bethesda and connect uh, Rockville to Wheaton. Um, but this is this is a very important corridor, and I guess Dave, do you want to speak a little more? No, I think that's all right. Okay. I think it is the lowest priority because it passes through two counties, and it will go to Fort Totten, uh, so it also passes through the District of Columbia. So again, it's it's thought of as the Montgomery County will complete the planning of this, but then the idea is to pass that back to the state to move forward. If you could go back to your priority list for a second. Can I hear a motion to agree with this list or an amendment to it? Just to be clear, the priorities as they are set on on your list are the same priorities that the that who the council has initially determined. Uh, that's correct. So, and I'll just walk through each of them. So, Maryland three fifty five Central BRT, uh, Viers Mill Road BRT. Those have. Uh, construction funding in the approved CIP. Uh, number three, Maryland 355 North and South BRT. That planning and design has been underway for uh, two to three years at this point. Um, next is US 29 Phase 2 BRT. You just saw that two months ago. Uh, that is now selected an alternative. It, uh, the, the council has now appropriated funds for more planning and, and to, I think, enter a 30% design. 
Um, so this is sort of the listings here is where each project is in, you know, from the planning to construction phases. See, we could sort of want things, but if they couldn't do it, it doesn't. Yeah. I, I will That's also exactly. mention yeah. that um, <laughs> the first two projects um, are part of um, a, a, sort of an MOU um, between um, the county and the state in regard to the op opportunity lanes. Um, the, the state promised funding for transit uh, service, uh, and, and uh, the county executive and Montgomery County DOT identified those two corridors as the ones that would be the benefactors of receiving money from the Opportunities Opportunity Lane projects. Um, and as I mentioned, that has been delayed, um, and so it is a bit of a concern, but um, that's, that, I think that's an additional element to consider. All right. Well, if I can't get a motion to approve, can I get a, a motion to accept by uh, silence? Do, do do we do we need to move on this particularly, or just move the whole letter in the end? No, oh, if you want to move the whole letter, we can. But right now, we're on this. Okay. And right. and, and I'm I'm trying to take notes too, so that at the end we can even come back and and, and ask whether or not you wanted to add in. Uh, for, for instance, uh, Commissioner Hill had talked about moving US 29 phase two BRT potentially up, and so we can kind of revisit those at the end. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do that instead of doing okay. this in pieces, I All would right. say. All right, let's go on okay. to the next piece. Yeah. Okay, next item, we're... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Commissioner Pinero. Oh. Yeah. Uh, let me just say that uh, something that Commissioner Hill brought up, which I think it's important, I'm also kind of disappointed that the um, I-270 transit corridor connector, the CCT, is all the way down on the priorities. I'd just like to express that. I, this is a project that, like like Commissioner Hill said, people are very concerned. I mean, people know about it, and they've been asking what happened to the CCT. So, um, you know, when we get that presentation from the county executive in terms of transportation priorities. I hope to uh, hear something, uh, good news about what's happening to that uh, project. That's all, thank you. Thank you. Okay. If I may also, I, um, one of the reasons I'm suggesting that we hear a little bit more is what I, when you came and when I had this and you said, well, here are the priorities, I thought about it as more of a wish list and I'm missing the component of what's, you know, the shovel ready and what's in the pipeline that obviously has gone into this. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I just kind of want the whole picture. Okay. And, and I, you know, when we get to it, I, I think it's, you know, the purpose of this input is, is to actually express some of these very concerns whether that whether that is a fact or not, if if you folks feel like projects should be ranked higher, I think that's an extremely valued and important part of this process. And and to that end, you know, um, um, I of course am concerned about New Hampshire Avenue being so far down the list. And and the reason really is because of the economic development potential. We we are just not once again <laughs> considering the economic development potential of East County. Um, and as a just a totally practical matter, uh, because I do understand the political, and it seems like the political is everybody gets something on this list somewhere in your area. Okay, I understand that. I get that totally. The, but what um, 
but but there's the practical, and the practical is that in order to um, really move economic development forward, there sh it, it would be helpful to have linkage, you know, um, and and to sort of pair things in quarters where you could really make something happen, you know, to have the 29 at number the 29 BRT at number four and then the New Hampshire Avenue BRT at number seven, well, that's not really, you know, um, doing the most um, for that quarter. Um, just like, well, anyway, um, it, it just seems to me that Veers Mill, New Hampshire Avenue, 29, if they were moved further up, that, then you would actually be spurring economic development and transportation opportunities in places that, first of all, really need them, um, and secondly, have great economic development potential. And I will now get that off my soapbox. Okay. We'll proceed to proceed. All right. So the next, the next section um, in the draft report is locally operated transit system support. Uh, and th these, these are funds that, you know, are, are provided to um, Montgomery County DOT and the ride on bus system to help make uh, continued improvements to um, transit services and, and, um, and systems. So um, the items on the list include, um, you know, a focus on zero emission bus, bus infrastructure. Um, you know, that one is not really a, a request, uh, but it's a continued um, focus that, 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 that is a mission of the county. Um, to go to an entirely zero emission bus fleet. Um, and then some requests for related to ride on extra, and, and then also requests for um, in, in, you know, increased support grants. So we can go through each of these individually if you'd like. Um, or, you know. I, I think this one's fine. Okay. Next, uh, certainly, um, you know, what goes on with Metro, Metro bus and Metro rail is, you know, is, is very critical within the county. Um, and so looking at WMATA investment, um, uh, you know, really becomes a part of this. Um, and now while um, SHA uh, does contribute to WMATA and, and the county and SHA or MDOT has, has some say in terms of uh, how some of these uh, WMATA investments get um, improved, um, so this is simply identifying some, some key recommendations um, and priorities for the county related to WMATA. Um, the first is that the North Bethesda, hard to get used to saying that, uh, White Flint, uh, the North Metro entrance, uh, which has been on the, the CIP WIS list for many years um, to help, you know, really sort of more revitalize the north side of the, White, the old White Flint Station. And while the county DOT has been working on um, a series of other transportation improvements, including improved sidewalks on 355 so that people can walk up towards Pike and Rose, um, you know, easier and safer with much less stress, um, the, you know, the, the need for um, state, state investment, um, you know, towards this is, is very important. And as well, the Metro bus system is, is also still a very important part of our overall bus network. Um, so, you know, making sure that that continues to be part of it, uh, part of um, our priorities from a funding side as well. 
Just, just a question on North Bethesda entrance, and that is there. So my recollection when you got to what was the Wake Flint Station was you come up and you've got the pedestrian bridge under 355 over to the conference center. Um, and we're not talking about that then. We're talking about an exit off the other end of the platform, which, as you mentioned, kind of services the growth around Pike and Rose. That yeah, I, okay. I think I think the the idea so far has been that this is this is likely ultimately going to be a developer-led type of you know redevelopment situation, uh, but that there would need to be significant investment just to build the portal, um, the, the portal portions, um, and and you know it also provides opportunities to improve um, bus connectivity to the metro station as well. Um, and one project I'll mention, the North Bethesda Transit Way, one of the options for that, uh, that transit way would be that it would actually start on Old Georgetown between 355 and, um, and Neville Street, pretty much on right, right where the, the north entrance would be, right. uh, which would provide a great connection to get people down to Old Georgetown towards the Rock Spring area. Right. And, and if I recall, Metro goes underground at the north end of that platform, doesn't it? So that's what we're talking about is bringing people up in there? Yep. Okay, thank you. Okay, I think we're okay with this okay. one. All right, next topic, commuter rail expansion. Uh, so um, some of these projects have been, again, in the, on the wish list in previous letters. Um, the first one, I'll just say Boyd Station, um, the county DOT has uh, embarked on a project for that already. Um, the planning board did hear a mandatory referral for that project a couple years ago, which was going to provide an improved parking lot um, and improve, um, I guess, sidewalks leading up to the, the, the platform. Um, but it didn't have everything. It didn't have uh, facilities for, um, uh, it, it didn't have a, um, an improved uh, crossing. Um, now there's a, actually an underground, a very old underground stairwell and tunnel, uh, which is extremely substandard and not available for ADA accessibility at all. Um, and as in addition, there's a historic structure that is right now is mothballed. So um, this um, project would ask for funding to continue the work that the county DOT has already begun to make this station, you know, really more more usable. Um, into its greater potential. Um, other projects, North, Be North Bethesda Station, um, really just want, want uh, you know, the state to continue or to pr pursue a planning study to, um, you know, to plan for both North Bethesda and Shady Grove as stations along the Mark, the mark Line. Uh, and the last item is really to improve midday and off-peak service, to start planning how to do that along the Brunswick Line um, it's, a, it's a definite need and underutilized potential. And well, there might be some issues in terms of, you know, not having a third, third rail in places. But um, to date, there's been almost no planning in that area. And we, you know, definitely feel like that needs to um, be pushed. P&O will tell you they need to move freight on the same line. So that's a uh, 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 keep going. Uh, well, can I, can yes. I posit just one thing here, which is, is there any interest among the other commissioners recommending that the expansion of service, uh, I would maybe put as number two, um, the expansion of service to get it running better might be a better priority than adding new stations. Or no I, I, I think it, that is so fraught with peril on the B&O side that you risk losing a priority for something that you practically can't get. 
I don't understand that statement. Well, <laughs> so maybe you, I can you chime need BNO's uh, permission approval. in right. order to expand service, which has nothing to do with your planning or or what you're doing on the receiving side of that. It's completely determined by a, by a third party. Um, so I, I think it's more wasteful thinking than good planning. Okay, so, so in practice we're saying that in a way that's the hardest one to accomplish, so we're calling for lowest priority. Okay. I would certainly, um, I would encourage an emphasis that increased planning for, you know, adding capacity to the Brunswick line is, is definitely needed. Um, you know, that could be a, a point of emphasis that we could add to the letter. I think the idea behind this ranking is number two and number three. Those could go forward if we're willing to remove an existing mark station. That has always been CSX's position. Uh, number four requires a third track, and that is a very long-term, costly, uh, impactful proposition, and therefore that should be at the bottom of the list. That's at least the thinking that we had when we ranked this. Okay. Thanks so for explaining. So what's the existing mark station that needs to be removed? They'll say any one. Pick one. Oh, just pick one. Like, yep. okay. That, that's a tough political <laughs> okay. battle okay, that we have to They haven't move. picked it. We yeah. haven't picked it. Nobody's they'll, picked they'll it. They'll this is pick just, it. okay. All right. I right, move on <laughs> to the next subject. Uh, pedestrian and bicycle facilities. Um, and again, many of these, um, they're not specific projects. This is more high level, really looking at um, state funding to help uh, Montgomery County DOT build the projects. So it includes uh, pedestrian bicycle safety implementation on state highways, which is something that the county, the county DOT does all the time, uh, providing, you know, building projects. For instance, even the Viers Mill BRT project, which you're going to see, is going to have significant improvements to the <coughs> sidewalk and side path network along Viers Mill Road, which is a state highway. Um, so, uh, you know, looking for increased funding in that area. Um, the, the county DOT, I mean, the county DOT designs uh, a lot of pedestrian and bicycle improvements uh, through their BIPA program, bicycle and pedestrian priority areas, um, and, you know, looking for increased funding from the state for that, because that's a program that actually was initiated by MDOT um, many years ago. Um, and third item is bike share program support, um, really, you know, increasing and continuing to fund, uh, to fund that. Uh, and the last one on the list, it's just, it is a specific project uh, because it's on uh, a, you know, a grade-separated uh, um, interstate-type facility, which is the Intercounty Connector. Um, a, a very a small section of the, the planned multi-use trail, which was supposed to extend the entire way across, was built, but there are two missing segments, and this is basically asking for funds to move forward in planning to complete those. I think those are okay. Let's continue on. All right. State highways. So this is a pretty big list. Uh, and again, I'm happy to, um, to go into the details of, of any of these, but I will go through them real quickly. Um, the first item in the list, Clopper Road. Uh, this is a project that has been uh, the county DOT's priorities for many years. <laughs> and it, it, it was a priority before the Watkins Glen interchange was constructed. And when it was in the planning, they kept saying, well, you're going to need to do something on Clapper Road. Um, so this is really just, you know, continuing to ask, now the Watkins Mill is, is done, now we actually are, have probably had better data. Um, and, you know, the, the 
priority here is to move forward and try to make improvements to make that work, that area work better. Um, the second item on the list is Maryland 198, and as I mentioned, that should say Old Columbia Pike. Um, and that is a project that um, actually now is in the planning stage at SHA um, and has been a big priority of um, the county for the longest time. And one of the problems with that project was that there was a county access road that was also being proposed. And neither agency um, were willing to fund one, saying, oh, we have to wait for this other project. And so finally, the county DOT funded the access road. They're, they're now moving forward. They're, they're actually past mandatory referral. Um, and, and so I think now's the time to let's, um, let's put in what we need to put in in Burtonsville. Um, it is not a very long distance. Um, it's a very good project from a multimodal perspective, from a vehicular, um, from a safety perspective. Um, and so it's, uh, I think that's why it's moved way up on the list. Um, other projects, uh, 355 Frederick Road. Um, this is really, um, I, I think last year or the year before, uh, MDOT SHA did a corridor analysis of this corridor. And they actually looked at it, um, at this corridor in conjunction with the proposed observation drive improvements by the county DOT. And they came back in, in, you know, with some recommendations of how can we stage improvements so we can improve access between Clarksburg and Germantown. Um, and so some of the recommendations that came out of that really showed that um, you don't have to widen 355 if you build Observation Drive right away, but there are improvements that you do need to make um, regardless, um, and it identified um, some, some of those improvements. And, and then it, I think it also identified a timeline like, well, at some point you, you may need to widen the road after all. So it was a very valuable study, but it was an early planning effort. So it's really um, the focus of this request is really to move that work forward and look at it in more detail. Um, some of the other ones, accelerated traffic signal mod modernization. This is a request we put in every year. Um, our signal system is large. Yeah, we need to upgrade it. Um, item number five, um, MD 190, River Road. Uh, this is a new request, and this actually came from uh, the area team, uh, Down County Planning. Um, this is a really a reflection of the fact that this road is on the high injury network. Um, there have been a lot of safety issues along this corridor. It's not, uh, it's very much a road-centric facility, uh, and the need for, for multimodal um, improvements um, is needed a lot. So, for, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, trying to get SHA to, to look at this corridor seriously. And this would run from between Little Falls Parkway and the Capitol Beltway. And yet you put this in the state highway category instead of the, the, the pedestrian bike category? Um, I, I guess that's a, that's a good point. It could be in either. But um, I think that there are safety improvements. Not all of them are just pedestrian and bike related. Um, but we certainly could entertain that motion to move it to the other category. Or put them both. Go ahead. Keep item, item six, um, Maryland 97 diverging diamond interchange at the Capitol Beltway. This, this is um, the reason it's listed here in state highways is that the, the concept, which was um, recommended in the Forest Glen Montgomery Hill sector plan, is primarily an arterial level improvement. It improves the way that um, traffic gets to the interchange ramps uh, and facilitates essentially the crossing of the traffic streams so that instead of having to make left turns, they, they simply peel right off uh, unobstructed. 
Um, if you've been from, through one, sometimes the first time it's very confusing, the second time you don't notice it, uh, and you're amazed at how smooth it works. Um, so, so this was something that was a master plan recommendation. Uh, we would, you know, we added it to the list, hoping that we can start the process of moving this forward. Is an example of this the Falls Road Exchange yes. on I two seventy? That's what we're talking about. Uh, no, no, no. That is a um, that is a single point um, interchange. Um, an, an example would be there's a, there's an interchange up in uh, Annapolis that is a partial, where where essentially the the traffic on the right moves over to, to the left, and then once it goes through the signal, it moves back again. Um, there's also, I know in, in Virginia, there's a, one of these is planned on uh, 66 near US 15. Um, they're not a lot, um, certainly not, met, not many in Maryland so far, um, but they, um, you know, when implemented, they've proven to, um, you know, um, to have significant safety benefits. Um, sometimes they have some challenges for bikes and peds, um, but they are, uh, they can be much more efficient. Um, for a lot of the ramp movements. And, and I'm guessing the footprint is significantly smaller, which is another land yes. use advantage, right? Than, than many other, uh, other interchange concepts, yes. And, and I'm glad you brought up uh, bikes and pedestrians, because that was my question about this. This is George Avenue, right? I'd just like mm -hmm. to make sure everybody knows what you're talking about. Um, and so, um, you know, there's, isn't there a walkway? A pedestrian walkway now? Yeah, well, there's actually, there's a sidewalk on the east side, which is very difficult to navigate. Right. And there is a side path um, that is on a separate facility on the west side. Because this links up with the Forest Glen Metro. So how would this particular um, diamond interchange um, affect those things? For the side path on the west, it would have no impact because that's that's a great separated facility. For the the sidewalk on the east side, um, it would have similar impacts, but likely controlled a little more safely. Um, it would, but it wouldn't be a significant improvement. Um, it might have some safety benefits, but you know you still would have to wait for a signal to cross a ramp. Um, Okay. All right, thank you. Um, last two items in the list, um, Maryland 97 and, and Maryland 28 interchange. Uh, this this in project was actually um, intersection improvements were completed within the last four or five years. Um, it's now like probably one of the widest intersections that I've ever seen. Uh, and so I think that there was always the idea that that's a short-term solution. Uh, you know, that MDOT needs to continue looking at planning, trying to make uh, an actual interchange work. And there actually are some really innovative interchange concepts that can, can be designed to handle, uh, you know, the crossing of bikes and peds pretty safely. Um, so we just, you know, this is encouraging them to, um, to go back and look at it a little bit more to try to come up with some better solutions and to continue to advance it. Uh, the last item on the list, uh, this was put on at the request of the town of Laytonsville which is the need for a bypasser on the west side of town. Um, and, you know, we were really just putting it on the list at their request. Okay, continue on. Okay. So the last section is about interstate programs. And um, I apologize, the, it, it may be difficult to, um, the slide is gonna have all the words from that section. 
this has been developed over time, uh, you know, really talking about, um, in, in, you know, in many cases, the, uh, the, the Opportunity Lanes project and the status and promises. And um, so th there's, there's a lot of words. Um, I think it's really continuing to say that, you know, um, we have some agreements. We need to move this forward. Please provide us more information. Um, let's move to the next slide. And uh, NCDOT is okay with your statement there? Well, um, much of this was originally crafted by um, MCDOT. Some of this is, like, you know, I took the 2020 letter and the 2022 letter and had some initial discussions with them. They, they haven't formally uh, right. reviewed it yet, but, so they have to work on it. Um, this actually is a comment that, that uh, planning staff added uh, that, that we definitely feel like with the bipartisan infrastructure law, there are other funding opportunities for some of these major facilities and, you know, um, right. relative to the P3 agreement or not, um, I think the new administration should seriously consider um, funding some of these things in, in different ways, if, if that's possible. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. <laughs> I, I mean, and there's next slide. big money out there. And, and last, you know, this, this, this was, um, a lot of this is from the amplification letter in 2022. Um, there are a lot of things that, that got suspended um, during COVID, and, um, and there, there's been no progress on the, you know, the MOU related to the Opportunity Lanes project. This is a really request, can we please move those forward? Can we please finalize the agreements? Um, and that's, that is that slide? What was that? And that concludes the presentation. Um, and so our recommendation is that we recommend that the planning board forward the, the draft to joint tra transportation priority letter to the county council and county executive as amended by planning board comments today for consideration of the development of the county's joint transportation priority letter. So thank, thank you for that. I, I think um, uh, uh, the comments that I've been hearing around all center on the uh, transit project list. So if you want to put that slide up and people can shoot at it or say what they want to say about it. Sure. Oh, um, yeah, and for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy. Uh, and I can uh, highlight the, the, the comments that I've heard. Um, I also wanted to let you know I've just taken a screenshot and I've asked uh, Catherine Coelho to show you uh, that is from our Forest Glen, Montgomery Hills, and our Down County team are either going to be really happy that I'm, you know, pulling this up and, and, and giving them uh, their, their uh, time to shine on this again, or uh, maybe they won't be. I don't know. Um, but this is from the Forest Glen, Montgomery Hills plan. This, this shows you that Divergent Diamond uh, that is, is part of that plan. Just I thought it might be helpful for you to see it. I presume that... Um Capacity impact is is under consideration here because that 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 intersection really or that interchange can can have flow problems. But um. yes, and, and I, I think um, the Forest Glen Montgomery here sector plan um, took a, a little bit different tact and, and maybe compared to to new master plans, it was much more um, operational um, in terms of because there was an active um, M dot project that was underway. The Montgomery Hills uh, improvements, and the you know the if you've ever driven down that corridor, you know it has a lot of traffic flow issues. Uh, there's too much traffic to get through that bottleneck in one time, 
And some of those problems are caused by the signals and the signal spacing and the, the competing demands. Um, and our consultant for that master plan actually looked at a lot of ways that we could do small improvements as part of SHA's design to make things work better. And what we found is that from the long range perspective, uh, this interchange concept was more efficient and would help to potentially remove some of that bottleneck so that the rest of the corridor could flow more smoothly. Okay. And is, is the blue here actually represent, say, stormwater f features, or is that just a coloration? Uh, I, I think that's, yeah, I think it's just, just non-pavement, <laughs> non, non-road pavement. Yeah. Of course, the other problem here is, is the backup on Georgia Avenue heading south. But, um, I mean, that's created by the signal there, so. Okay, um, let's go. Okay, so um, if we could go back to the PowerPoint um, and the BRT implementation. So uh, the first comment that I had here was to prioritize the US 29 phase two BRT above the Maryland 355 north and south BRT. And I added in what I kind of thought, I thought it would be good to give some explanation. And so we can discuss this, but the, uh, given the county's emphasis through Thrive Montgomery 2050 on investing in the East County. I, I, would, I would distinguish that I was really interested in, instead of, I, I would like to see north and south of 355 decoupled um, because I think they really deserve different priorities. And definitely uh, Route 29, in my opinion, should be, go above the south part of the 355 part. Um, I'm kind of on the fence about the north part. Uh, let, let's make this simple. Let's yeah. let's try first to see if we want 29 to be the third priority. Okay. Is that okay with everybody? I, I, you know, that was my sense too. Is that that Route 29 really deserves the the higher level treatment faster? Mm -hmm. And since we just went through that as well, you know, that might create some operational challenges to get the designs finished and all of that, but at least we should show it that high of a priority. And I will also mention that, um, you know, there's been work on the Fairland Bridge Cheney master plan, and so there, there might be some recommendations from that that could tie into this phase two project as well. Not sure if that actually is going to link up, but, you know. Yeah, but I'm sure the design work will continue as we as we get to that plastic. So that that will that will work itself out uh, underneath the priority to to get this going. Um, are are people okay with moving uh, the? Uh, I, su I support that simplified recommendation. Yeah. Okay, so so I also support it. Great. Okay. Uh, now you want to separate north and south. Uh, I, I guess that's possible. Do you have uh, the map up? Just so people know where they're talking about. No. The, yeah, we have a, the map shown on the screen, and uh, we have to get up to it. Um, so we'll start looking at, yeah, so this is the north section, which runs from Essentially, the um, the outlets at Clarksburg, um, along um, Stringtown Road to Stonefire Parkway, then down Ridge Road, and then down to Montgomery College in Germantown, um, would connect to the Central Route um, at Montgomery College. 
I can certainly see how that would be a higher priority than the southern route. Yeah. Agreed. The, the, the southern route um, starts at Montgomery College in Rockville right. yeah. um, and goes down to Bethesda. Uh, I think the termination in Bethesda was master planned as the south, the planned south station of the Bethesda station, south entrance. Uh, I, yeah, I, I'll just, uh, I think I, we should say that the south piece does go through the White Flint, North Bethesda section. So just be aware of that. That has economic development implications. And and, and it would connect to the Purple Line. Right, but the, the, the North section, um, I mean, uh, realistically, because of the uh, transit quarters, was the CCT uh, being on the absolute bottom of everything um i'm wondering whether this uh, doing moving up this north section would in fact um alleviate some of the congestion and concern especially along 270 at this point um and and facilitate um you know local uh individuals being able to get around a lot better in that part of uh, the county Go ahead. I'm just, uh, Commissioner Presley has her hand raised. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize per Commissioner Presley there. Thank you. That's Commissioner Presley. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I am in violent agreement with Commissioner Branson. Violent um, agreement. For, violent agreement. I'm afraid um, now. I don't know what that means, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm enthusiastic. I'm, I'm in happy agreement. I'm in agreement with you. Um, but here's why. So I'm living there and I get to experience this. Now, long time ago, we had a master plan that had other routes out and this whole area was considered to be like a ladder. They called it, you know, rungs of a ladder between 270 and 355. There were going to be and beyond. There were going to be other ways out. Um, to assist the people coming down from Damascus and so forth. And one of those was M83. Right. And, you know, 38 plus years later, that hasn't occurred. So we're stuck now in an area in Clarksburg, when you think about it, where the delivery of the jobs, the live, work, eat, play, it didn't come to fruition. There were issues with the, the um, watershed. So some of the commercial wasn't developed. And you have a, re you know, a big outlet mall, but that's really it. There's no other business. So people can't work there unless they work retail. So now you've got a bunch more people getting on to 270 and 355. And there is no, no practical way of, of uh, you know, commuter transit. So I just wanted to add that. Uh, Sorry for being so vehement. No, well, everybody's in violent agreement here, I think. <laughs> um, so why don't we split that into north and south, make south a, a lesser priority? I would support that. I think everybody would support I, that. So. I, I guess the, the question I would have is, do we want to actually assign it numbers? I mean, it sounds like it, yes. we're talking about number four for uh, the north section, and right. then maybe to be determined on the south section? Right, number four for the for the north section, and then... I, I, would, I would put south at the bottom of the list, but uh, that is divorced from the uh, economic development potential of that. Yeah, I'm I still thinking about that. transportation. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> 
Well, and if I could just highlight the two other comments I had from you all from earlier in this section were to move the New Hampshire Avenue BRT up in priority given its multi-jurisdictional impact and potential to strengthen the East County economy and connectivity there. Uh, and then also to move the I-270 transit corridor connectors up in priority given years of commitments made to the communities served by the connectors. And soon we'll be levitating because you can't move everything right. up and yeah. still be on the ground. Uh, yeah, that's why I wanted to make sure uh, that was part of the conversation. May I, may I suggest a, an option for the the, num, the I-270 transit corridors? I got to get used to not saying CCT. Um, and, and that is just to make the observation that the expectation of the system industry has really been raised and never satisfied in, in actually, I would say almost 30 years. I said 20 years before, but I think this goes back to the mid-90s. And, um, and I think that's the major concern with that particular item and its potential mm -hmm. to support the what the county is saying is this really important uh, economic engine with the health industries in the in the health sciences area, and um, and maybe we don't move it on the list, but just make that as a point. There you go. I, I think that's the way to do it because it's also the most uh, you know one of those projects that's subject to the the federal infrastructure act. If we can ever get our act together on our, uh, yes. You know, I don't know where the design is enough on that to know whether we can apply, but um, I, I think that's a good idea. So we'll leave that one alone. Um, but but you, are, you are agreeing to adding a comment about it yes. as, as opposed to a reordering. Yeah. <coughs> okay. uh, and I definitely think when we, when we review the CIP uh, on the 23rd of February that, you know, we, we can have some representatives from DOT here and we can specifically ask them about the work that's ongoing on the corridor connectors project. There's some early phases that are planned, um, so I think that might be helpful. And, and I think th the issue here is that we're looking at projects that are very short term, with some that are medium term, and that I-270, like you're saying, there may be some initial steps going on now, but it's it's more of a long range, depends on federal, state funding. I mean, there's many many stakeholders involved. So, yeah, I agree with the comment. And the New Hampshire Avenue, although it's a great idea, needs to advance further in planning, I would think, to go higher on the list. But Yeah, I would yeah. say that number five, uh, number seven, are about at the same phase in project development. Oh, five to seven are the five same Five and phase? seven. I'm, I'm not really sure where yeah. the park and ride expansion lies. Well, then, then move it up above North Bethesda Transitway. Flip them out. Flip them. Flip five for seven. Yeah. Okay. One thing I will point out is that in the attachment D, the top 100 priorities, which was established by the previous planning board, um, the North Bethesda, the New Hampshire Avenue BRT was priority 21, and the North Bethesda Transitway was priority much further down the list. So it, um, 65 out of 100. So. Um, from a pure transportation and even, I would say, from the planning board's perspective previously, um, New Hampshire has always been more important. See that? So we're... we're yes. The, 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 the prior <laughs> planning board had very good judgment. <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, just, just an idea. Is it, is it useful to combine MD-355 South with the North Bethesda Transitway since it kind of services the, the same area? I think they're such significantly different projects, and they have different, you know, like different okay. investment needs. So I, I think they're fine where they are. Um, um, 
you know, and, and I'm not sure where we landed in terms of where South is or relative South, yeah. to North Bethesda. Uh, well, I, I'll just say they're at very different stages. Of okay, okay. It was just an idea. I yeah. was right. thinking so, about it geographically. So just p split North and South and, and put South below North. Okay. I think uh, that's about it. Um, does staff have enough? The, the only other uh, comment I, I noted was with the commuter rail expansion to emphasize the need to expand mark capacity, not necessarily to change any, any of the prioritizations, but just to add that emphasis in there. Good luck. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, I, I actually had a, uh, another one, which was um, we identified River Road as a state highway improvement, yeah. and I guess that could be seen as a pedestrian and bike improvement. Um, you know, but I think, you know, the reality is that this is a request to SHA. Exactly. And it's, it's a corridor before it's a place for bike facilities. Yeah. So that, that's why it's on the state. Yeah, they, they, they would like it more in this category than the other course. Yes. So it's more likely to get funded in this category. So it's okay. All right. I think uh, if you if staff has enough uh, guidance. Do you, do, you have, do you have adequate sense of writing the, the comment about um, the I-270 transit corridor? Yeah, what I, ha what I have in here now, and uh, we're making edits to the, yeah. the transmittal letter because uh, council staff wants to include this in a the packet they're posting today. So, um, today. so that's Sorry. why we're trying to. <laughs> so what I have in here now is that the comment from the board is to emphasize the importance of the I-270 transit corridor connectors and the years of commitments made to the community served by the connectors and the county's emphasis on the life sciences industry. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Okay. We're good. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. A tough presentation all over the map. <laughs> really. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, Council, do we need a motion to support a recommendation letter, or is this discussion adequate? This works. Okay. Okay. If it works, it works. Um, do we have to pause to go to the next item? Yes, we do. We're pausing.
Good morning. It's still uh, January 19th, 2023. We are on um, item six of the planning board agenda, the Great Seneca plan connecting life sciences, existing conditions, uh, and I'll turn it over to staff. Thank you and good morning. Uh, for the record, I'm Marin Hill with the Mid-County Master Plan team. Um, and we're here to present an update on the Great Seneca Plan, Connecting Life and Science. During the presentation, we're going to share uh, the progress to date on this uh, plan, as well as some highlights from the existing conditions report, which was shared in full with the um, planning board as part of their packet, and a snapshot of our community engagement work, as well as next steps in the plan. So I just wanted to start with what a master plan is and what it means to do. Master plans in their essence are creating a vision for the future with specific recommendations that help implement that vision. They seek to engage the community by bringing stakeholders together, fostering dialogue about the future that will ultimately help define a community vision. Through master plans, we analyze and prepare land use and zoning recommendations as well as prepare recommendations on transportation, infrastructure, environmental assets, community facilities uh, that will serve as a guide to the future of development. Um, that is what a master plan is, but there are many things that a master plan can't do, such as ensure that redevelopment or reinvestment occurs, bring specific retailers or commercial uses to an area, uh, revoke existing approvals, or require adjacent property owners to consolidate land um, uh, or fund capital improvements. As the planning board heard uh, last week during the update on Thrive Montgomery 2050, these master plans um, relate with other county plans. Uh, the general plan, Thrive 2050, uh, sets high-level policy guidance and land use priorities for all master plans. And nested under the, the, um, the general plan are functional and countywide plans that usually cover the whole county um, or are, are uh, organized around a specific theme, like the pedestrian master plan. Um, master plans are usually area uh, plans that cover a specific ge geography and make recommendations just for that area. Um, studies and guidelines and studies that are nested under the master plans um, look at current conditions and offer additional recommendations and strategies to foster future stewardship of Montgomery County's natural and built environment and its communities. Studies can be the thematic, geographic-based, or both. Guidelines and standards um, typically address urban design or detailed planning scenarios following guidance from master plans. So it's kind of like that Russian nesting doll of how they influence um, one another. Um, an example of this is the urban design guidelines that frequently accompany master plans. And all of these inform our development review process, which is really the implementation of um, the master plan and uh, uh, general plan vision goals and recommendations. So while master plans um, and the recommendations are guided by these other plans that I just mentioned, they're also additionally informed through the master plan process. Planners incorporate um, expert analysis, such as current conditions, market forces, best practices, um, as well as guiding policies, as well as um, things like community input, the wants and needs of the community, their lived experience um, from day to day in the plan area. Um, and combine that with outside expert cons consultation, which could be research studies, market analysis, um, transportation modeling, as well as uh, 
coordination and collaboration with our uh, partner agencies throughout the county and the state. And all of these things we take and mix together and kind of balance out to create our recommendations. Now bear with me, I know this is a long and wordy slide, but I wanted to uh, share this because the master plan process is really quite long. Um, it's a multi-year process and it begins with the county council adding an item to our, uh, to our work program. Um, from there, the planners begin uh, pre-scope of works, begin connecting uh, with community members and doing initial data collection, and then present a scope of work to the planning board, um, which is approved and says, this is what we're hoping to look at and study over the next couple years. Um, then the next phase of the plan is really the largest phase. It's the visioning and, the, and analysis phase, and as you'll see on the next slide, that's the phase that we're currently in in this plan. Um, and that is doing really the robust community engagement and outreach, but it's also doing all of our data collection and analysis, um, some of which you'll be able to see in the existing conditions report that you received. Um, from there, plans move into uh, preliminary recommendations, which will go to the board and also go back to the community because it's a reflection to the community. Did we hear what you told us? Are we getting this right? Are there things that we're missing? Um, and it's an opportunity for our agency partners as well as the planning board to make rec additional recommendations. Uh, the working draft is the first time that the, plan the planning board really sees a full draft of the plan um, and can make changes and comments um, before, they, uh, before the planners submit a public hearing draft. And that's really when the community has their first opportunity to talk to the board directly and give their comments on the existing draft in the form of a public hearing. Um, after that, the planning board holds work sessions and makes really gets into making their changes and uh, the nitty gritty of the plan details. And um, once they're satisfied, transmits that to the county executive for comments and to the county council so that they can go through their own review and uh, work session process. Um, finally, once the county council approves and adopts a master plan, um, it's implemented both, as I mentioned, through uh, these our development re review process as developments come in, but also by our agency partner partners such as MCDOT, as you heard with the, the letter and last item. Um, so just wanted to run through that briefly so you could see where we are in this process. We're still... Um, Relatively at the beginning of this process, we began our pre-scope of work work in um, February of last year, and uh, the board uh, adopted or approved a scope of work for us in May 2022. We're currently in that um, visioning and analysis phase, which, as I mentioned, is the, the bulk of the plan time, um, and it ran from spring of last year, um, and we expect it to go through spring of this year. And as I mentioned, that's really the large part of our community engagement is during this time. Um, we anticipate being able to uh, bring the preliminary recommendations to the board in um, uh, this spring, late, late this spring. Um, so that is also to say we do not have any recommendations to share today, uh, just background information. And then in the summer or late fall, we expect to bring our working draft um, with and anticipate planning board uh, hearing to, to come in the fall of 2023, uh, work sessions to follow, and we expect the, the plan to be approved and adopted by summer of 2024. So that's just where we are in our, uh, in our timeline. 
Um, so now that we've talked a little bit about the master plan process and where we are in that process, I just wanted to take a moment to discuss how we got to this plan specifically. Um, this plan, the Great Seneca Plan, is an amendment to the 2010 Great Seneca Science Corridor Master Plan. Uh, and the 2010 Great Seneca Science Corridor Master Plan was, uh, was approved and adopted in 2010. This master plan really created a blueprint for the area as a biotechnology, healthcare, and higher education hub. In addition to supporting a medical center, the, the um, Adventist Healthcare Shady Grove Medical Center, research facilities, and academic institutions like the universities at Shady Grove, um, there are private companies. The plan um, imagined an array of services and amenities that would serve residents, workers, and visitors to the area. The vibrant live-work community would be serviced not just by an extensive trail system, but also by a gridded street system and um, a high-quality transit system as well in the form of the Quarter Cities Transit Way, also known as the CCT. The CCT was uh, the cornerstone of this vision, really connecting internally the Life Science Hub, um, but also connecting it externally to the existing transportation network as well as residential um, communities in the area. The CCT was also the centerpiece of staging requirements that were established in this 2010 plan. These staging requirements um, seek to address the timing of development and provision of key public uh, facilities and amenities. They seek to ensure the delivery of infrastructure and services that would support future development and minimize negative uh, impacts. However, with the stalled implementation of the CCT in 2019, the County Council added two additional items to the Montgomery, Plan to Montgomery Planning's work program, uh, a, technical mass or a technical amendment to evaluate the staging requirements of this 2010 plan, um, and as well as a transit plan to examine existing planned and potential transit options to serve the communities along I-270, including the Quarter Cities Transitway. Upon this request, Montgomery Planning uh, initiated the Great Seneca Science Corridor Minor Master Plan and, the, and Corridor Forward, the I-270 Transit Plan. Um, Corridor Forward was approved by the Council in April of 2022, and this plan, as you heard a little bit, re-envisions the Corridor City's transitways, uh, transitway from a single fixed route uh, to a netway, network of dedicated bus lanes called the Corridor Connectors. The corridor connectors are designed to serve each of the activity centers that were previously served by the CCT, but they do so in a way that's more efficient, equitable, and um, frankly, realistic to build. Um, and then the Great Seneca Science Corridor Minor Master Plan Amendment, um, which was the technical amendment uh, to the 2010 plan, was approved by the council in November of 2021. This amendment adjusted the staging requirements um, of the 2010 plan, just slightly acknowledging that the current staging was not meeting its intended goals. Um, but the, the amendment also recommended pursuing a more comprehensive amendment to the 2010 plan um, that, would that would comprehensively evaluate the 2010 plan recommendations, staging, and, um, and the process. The Great Seneca Plan is this comprehen comprehensive um, amendment to the 2010 plan. So just to quickly recap, why are we doing this plan? Um, we're doing it to um, incorporate recently approved countywide initiatives and policies like Thrive um, uh, Montgomery 2050 and the uh, 
um, and others like Vision Zero. We're also um, doing it to examine the departures and barriers from the 2010 plan and address those departures and barriers. Uh, we are also incorporating the new planned infrastructure and or recommended infrastructure such as the corridor cities transit ways into our recommendations um, and um, incorporating new emerging issues and trends. I like to think of when the 2010 plan was passed, smartphone use was at a minimum. There was not really widespread Uber, Lyft, or um, telework for that matter. So looking at these emerging trends and issues and incorporating them into our recommendations. So where exactly is this, uh, this plan? It's in the, I know, it's in the heart of the I-270 corridor. It borders the inner county um, connector as well as MD-355, Rockville Pike, and it's adjacent to the Mark Brunswick, Brunswick line, including one of the, uh, the stations. Um, and it's an archipelago, as we were saying, of uh, different areas. It's, it's not a contiguous plan area. So as you can see here, um, it includes the area that is outlined in gray and um, in white. So um, it includes the, uh, the Quince Orchard neighborhood as well as uh, the uh, Seneca State Park, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is that blob in the middle, and the Londonderry Apartments, which are across uh, I-270 in that middle area. Um, and uh, as well as this, these, these dots of, um, of, of neighborhoods um, on the right side of your screen on the east that are separated by the city of Gaithersburg. City of Gaithersburg is shown on the map in yellow, and it takes up about 10 square miles right in the middle of the, uh, the plan area. And in pink is the city of Rockville, which borders it, um, borders the plan area to the east. And then uh, that small area at the top that is in orange is the um, town of Washington Grove. Um, so despite the fact that we have this very large plan area, we're really gonna be uh, focusing in on what we creatively called the focus area, um, which is just that eastern side um, of, of the plan area. And um, it includes the neighborhoods of Rosemont, Oakmont, and Walnut Hill, as well, well as the Washingtonian industrial and residential areas, um, and, um, and the Life Science Center. And the reason that we're focusing on this area is that it's, uh, it's where we've seen the most newly approved um, or built development. It's also adjacent to important commercial centers such as the Rio Lakefront and Downtown Crown, which are in the city of Gaithersburg. And it contains roadways um, with planned major infrastructure as well as neighborhoods that are potentially uh, affected by concurrent uh, municipal plans. Um, but again, that Russian nesting doll. Um, we, although we have a focus area, Many of our recommendations are going to be related to the Life Science Center, um, which was the focus of the 2010 plan, and it's the only area that's subject to the staging requirements of the 2010 plan. Um, it is a life science and medical employment and research hub um, for and very important economic driver for the county. Um, it's the site of most of the new construction that we've, uh, new housing construction that we've seen in the area. And it's the part that really, the, the part of the plan that really departs the most from the 2010 plan vision. And as you can see here, it includes the universities at Shady Grove, as well as Adventist Healthcare uh, Medical Center, and um, as well as many private businesses and, and uh, multifamily apartment buildings. Um, 
So let's see. Um, with that, I would like to shift um, to highlights from our existing conditions report. As I mentioned previously, the board received a copy of the full existing conditions report in their packet just for reference, but we'll just be focusing on the most salient points or the, the high points. Um, and who lives here? Although the area, as I said, is primarily known for um, the institutions and the life science industry that are located here, the plan area is home to nearly 16,000 people that comprise um, almost 7,000 households. The area's population has grown dramatically since the year 2000 um, with an increase of 40%, nearly double that of the county rate over the same period of time. Um, and on average, these households are both smaller and have significantly lower median income than the, uh, than the county as a whole. The racial and ethnic diversity of the plan area is consistent with the county, with a slightly lower uh, white population and a slightly larger Asian population than the county as a whole. Um, and by comparison, there are some key differences between the plan area and surrounding cities. The city of Rockville has a slightly higher share of white residents and smaller share of black uh, or African-American residents. And the city of Gaithersburg has a notably larger share of Hispanic and Latino residents um, and a smaller share of white residents. Uh, the four top languages in our plan area are Spanish, uh, Chinese, including both Mandarin and Cantonese, Korean and French. Um, and the area, as I mentioned previously, has a, a slightly younger but similar age profile to Montgomery County um, as a whole with a larger share of 20 to 34 year olds. Um, and while the growth in this age group and the plan area between 2010 and 2020 has been limited, there was a net loss in um, that age group for Rockville, Gaithersburg and the county as a whole. Um, so it's, it's very unique in its ability to draw younger residents um, in the county. Um, Moving into uh, land use and zoning, talking about what actually can be built here and what uh, could be built here. Uh, the zoning outside of the life sciences, so you get, uh, you'll see this on several slides. On the, the left side is the, uh, the plan area as a whole, and then there's um, another uh, map that focuses in on the life sciences center. So the zoning outside of the life sciences center is largely residential, um, as you can see. Um, with a few notable successions, such as the commercial residential zoning uh, at the Washingtonian uh, residential that lies between downtown Crown and Rio, as well as the industrial and uh, manufacturing in the northwest, uh, in the northeast part of the plan in the Washington Industrial Park along Shady Grove Road. Um, in the LSC, the LSC zone is uh, mainly zoned the, LS, the Life Sciences Center is primarily zoned LSC zone. Uh, and the primary purpose of this uh, LSC, zone, LSC or Life Sciences Center zone is to promote research, academic, and clinical facilities that advance the life sciences, healthcare, uh, healthcare services, and um, applied technologies. Uh, residential uses are also a uh, limited use in these zones. Um, and in the, the LSC zone, the uh, Currently, the floor area ratio is uh, 1.5. And what that means is floor area ratio is really a measurement of development density. Higher um, floor area ratios, or FARs, are, mean that there's uh, more de dense development is allowed on the, uh, on the property site. 
FAR is the ratio of gross floor area of a building to the area of the property on which it is located. So I think this is a helpful slide that Aaron made um, that shows if you had a, uh, you know, the 1.5 FAR, if you see in that first 100% lot coverage, you would get all of the lot covered um, and then 50% more. So it's a two-story and then flat. Um, a 50% lot coverage could look like uh, three stacked uh half half of the site. And then 25%, you see that it kind of moves down and down. So one of the benefits of um, higher FARs is it can provide greater space for other things, such as open space or other amenities on a site. Um, and so let's see. So then what is here? This is a land use map. So we just saw a zoning map. And with the land use map, you can see that the western portion of the plan area that includes uh, Seneca's Creek State Park, uh, which is nearly um, 1,800 acres, is uh, that very green area on the western part. Um, and then you also see the uh, single-family detached neighborhood homes in Quinn's Orchard neighborhood uh, right next to the, the park. Uh, the center area includes the National Institutes of Technology um, and these multifamily homes that I mentioned at the Londonderry apartments. And then the focus area is a mix of single-family detached homes in Walnut Hill, Oakmont, and Rosemont neighborhoods. Um, and then if we look at the Life Sciences Center, which you can see um, at larger, it's dominated by both institutional uh, and research and development uses. Um, and that includes, again, the universities at Shady Grove and uh, Adventist Healthcare Shady Grove Medical Center. Um, however, the Life Sciences Center area also includes um, over 3,500 dwelling units and um, nearly 215,000 square feet of retail. Check your map. You've got uh, the, uh, I, it looks to me like you've got the University of Shady Grove as, as uh, Parking and transportation. Yes, you are correct. For some reason in our um, GIS, this is how it's showing up. But yes, you are correct that that is actually the universities at Shady Grove, that um, gray blob that is, they would say, much more than parking and transportation. I, I think. Yes. <laughs> I, I think they would definitely, you would have their support. <laughs> um, so in terms of total zoning, the total zoning capacity that was established by the 2010 plan for the Life Sciences Center is approximately 17 million square feet of non-residential development and 9,000 uh, dwelling units. So that's what could potentially be built if everyone built to the max of what they were allowed. Um, however, to date, there are currently um, a, just over 8 million square feet of non-residential development as well as 2.5 million square feet of approved but unbuilt capacity. So that's capacity that has been approved by the board in the form of a preliminary plan, but has not yet been constructed, um, which leaves over 6 million square feet of unallocated uh, development capacity, which could be um, applied for. Um, and one of the things that we've seen in this area is that there are many um, properties that received approvals um, many years ago, sometimes even 20 or more years ago, um, that due to extensions um, both given for individual sites, but as well as blanket extensions given by the council for things like the 2009 recession and um, COVID among others, that they still have valid approvals even though they have had these approvals for a long time. So we do see a bit of that in this approved but unbuilt capacity. 
Um, and with that, I would like to turn it over to uh, Lisa Gavoni to talk about housing. Thank you, Martin. Good morning, Planning Board. For the record, my name is Lisa Gavoni with Countywide Planning and Policy. I'm going to have a very brief overview of housing in the plan area. Next slide. So one of the interesting things about housing in the Great Seneca plan area is that it has a greater mix of housing types than the county as a whole. If, if you look at this bar chart, you'll see that you know almost one out of two unit in the county is a detached unit. But when you look at the plan area, that number shrinks to around 24%. And over 60% of the housing units in this plan area are in multifamily structures, either in buildings with two to 19 units, so garden style apartment buildings, or high rises or mid rises with 20 or more units. Next slide. One of the other remarkable things about this plan area that happened in, in 2022, 2022, last year, is that um, the rents here surpassed the county's rents. Um, in 2022, they were about 2,100 in the Great Seneca Master Plan area and about 2,000 on average in the county. So still high, close, but I think it's important to note that this is becoming an area of increased popularity to live, and we note that because we're looking, when we look at the vacancy rate, it's down to 2.5% last year, and that's very, very low. Usually a healthy vacancy rate is between five and 7%. The closer you get to five and even under it, showing that you have a supply-constrained market and that there's room and that there's demand to build more housing here. And the county at the same time also has a low vacancy rate, uh, around 4.2, so that, that also shows, but I think it's showing the popularity of this area for housing. And then finally, this area is well served by affordable housing. Uh, I've worked on a lot of master plans, and I would say that this area has probably the greatest, one of the greatest mixes of affordable housing um, in the county. About almost one out of every four unit in the plan area is an affordable housing unit at 19%. Most of the affordable housing is through the low income housing tax credit, which we talked about last week, but it's a state funded, uh, state administered, federally funded program that helps cover tax uh, credits, but there's also other affordable housing units. There's, you know, project-based Section 8. HOC has a lot of property here that they uh, finance through their bonds to create affordability. But one of the other things that I think that's important to know, and I'll end on this, is the plan has been really successful at creating housing. We talk about its success at building life sciences and becoming a hub. But with that, life sciences also came a decent amount of housing. And because of that new housing, we're able to get moderately priced dwelling units. We're able to get inclusionary zoning units that help create affordability in the plan area. So I'll turn it over to Bilal. Can I ask a question about that? Because I sure. want to match something up, and this is just an experience-based observation, which is it seems to me that the number of multifamily units has created market-based affordability in this area, and that's probably why the age demographic you observed exists, because people coming into their professional careers don't make salaries that can afford, you know, the, the housing in Gaithersburg and Rockville around this, which is quite expensive. And I, it seems to me those things are, are coalescing here. And, and I, is, is that a reasonable observation? Sure. I think that that's a great trend to point out. I think one of the things this plan does is it has a lot of older, naturally occurring or market rate affordable housing, as, as you pointed out, which provides housing opportunities for the people that live here. I think one of the things that we have heard is there's not enough for the, the hub, the life science hub. There's not enough affordable housing, entry level market rate. And certainly there is a decent amount of new housing here, which is more, afford, which is more expensive that I think you're creating this kind of like bifurcated 
rental market where we're seeing kind of both things existing. But we will look at opportunities to kind of, you know, preserve what's there and to expand uh, housing opportunities through the plan area as we work vision with the community. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Lisa. I'm Bilal Ali with the Research and Strategic Projects uh, Division. I'll be talking a little bit about uh, employment in the area and the real estate market as well. Um, so this first slide uh, you can see clearly, and it's a really a fascinating finding is that the plan area and adjacent, which we sort of define to be the contiguous boundary of the of the plan area, so including parts of Rockville and Gaithersburg, um, the total private employment in this area has increased by 28% since 2010, whereas the rest of the county actually lost employment. So that's a that's a major difference. You know, there's clearly um, we know that the life science industry is is here. It's growing and it's driving sort of divergent trends in employment within this plan area compared to the rest of the county, and that's a strength that we definitely want to highlight. Um, if you look in the, in the next slide, you can see some of where some of this employment comes from, and it's interesting that our private employment was increasing by 28%. Actually, the largest employers in this area are federal um, uh, institutions and labs. The largest private um, employer is a life sciences firm, BioReliance, um, and so you can sort of see see uh, the picture painting of the kinds of employees that we have here, um, more scientific oriented, um, and again, uh, dominated by the, the life science industry, certainly in the private sector. Um, we don't have a slide uh, in this particular deck, but what a really great finding that we came across, actually my colleague Ben uh, Kraft pulled, was that between 2010 and 2021, the private employment specifically, so not employment um, uh, at NIST or any of the other uh, government agencies that you see here, but specifically within the subsector of research and development and manufacturing employment for life sciences specifically, the contiguous plan area saw a doubling of employees in that, in that category. So it went from roughly 4,500 to nearly 9,000. Uh, in the same time period, those jobs increased by 10% countywide. And so now the plan area has nearly, you know, twice as many employees in this, in this um, subsector than the county overall. And so this is clearly a, a concentration of, of the life sciences industry. And there's some evidence that the life science industry is actually consolidating in this area as well. Um, and that actually dovetails nicely with the real estate market. Um, and I'm going to focus a little bit on commercial real estate here and specifically office. Um, and the reason is, uh, because we have such a concentration of, off, of, of life science businesses, they're actually sort of affecting the, the trends we see in office overall. It's actually hard to pinpoint the exact amount of life sciences uh, development in this area because it tends to be subsumed under the office category. But as you can see in these charts, there are divergent trends in uh, office rents and vacancy in this area, specifically um, the life sciences area. Um, and even the submarket with which it's a part of, the Rockville Gaithersburg office submarket. So you can see that um, rents have increased dramatically um, to be you know, over $35, um, which is consistent with what we know is the going rate for life science labs. Um, ARE, Alexandria Real Estate, charges approximately $45 per square foot. So it's right in that range. And you can see also that the uh, vacancy rate has fallen, and including since uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which we know had a undermined uh, the viability of traditional office, and yet the trend is, is on the down, um, you know, declining here in terms of vacancy. Um, next slide, please. Uh, this slide just sort of 
emphasizes those points. So um, on the bottom, we have absorption, which is leasing activity. And you can see there was net positive leasing activity in the life sciences area in the office market in most years. Um, and that contrasts with, with the submarket that it's a part of and the county. Um, but interestingly, um, you know, one, the other sort of aspect that's driving down the vacancy rate is the relative lack of development in, uh, uh, for life sciences or office specifically. Um, there are reasons for that, but again, the lack of deliveries plus the net increase in absorption or, or leasing activity is driving the, the vacancy rate uh, down. Um, so what's relevant to the plan? Um, well, we actually try to square these findings with uh, the industry, so business experts or business life science businesses and then real estate experts um, with expertise in life science development specifically. Um, we held those focus groups in October, and what we found, um, sort of the highlights are summarized here. This region, relative to other top-tier firms, so that caveat is important, this is a top-tier market for life sciences, it's got less venture capital funding. So places like Boston, San Diego, San Francisco, they just have a greater presence of VC in their area, um, and that leads to things like um, a lot of our firms having headquarter, corporate headquarters there so they can continue to access rounds of capital, um, which can undermine the talent recruitment for businesses in this area sometimes because younger um, professionals are more inclined to go to places like Boston, San Diego. Um, the other impact of the slightly relatively low amount of VC funding in this particular region is that we have a lack of smaller lab space, which we heard from businesses as a major sort of gap in the market. There are a lot of startups, a lot of places that need small spaces that can sort of grow into. Um, but because of the lack of VC funding, you know, not a lot of real estate developers are necessarily comfortable developing those kinds of spaces because there's a lot of risk. One thing we heard from the real estate industry is that they sort of see themselves as a venture capital type extension themselves because they have to consider the risk profile of the businesses that they're leasing to and what their burn rate is and whether they're going to survive in the coming years. Um, we also have seen in this area, I didn't point it out, but there have been office-to-lab conversions. Um, and that's an interesting opportunity. But again, our real estate expert says there's probably a cap on the viability of that, um, just because of the, the sort of viability of some buildings converting to labs. Um, but also, more broadly, while the life science industry is growing and an important one to the county, it's only going to have it's only going to be able to uh, solve the problem of, of traditional office vacancies so much. We're not really going to eat into all of it. We're still going to have vacant offices, presumably, in the future. Um, and so the life science industry is not necessarily a solution to that, to that problem. Um, the other thing, though, that we did learn, what's the strength of this place in particular is, is the access to 270, is the amount of housing, the convenience, the life qual quality of life. Um, but you know, it's not necessarily the Great Seneca plan itself. I mean, Alexandria Real Estate um, will charge $45 square foot for labs in Germantown, just like they will in this Great Seneca plan area. And so that suggests that while there is a concentration and consolidation of life science industry here, there's still an opportunity to sort of plan uh, for some more urbanized space and meet some of the additional demand that businesses express, like having a little more of a live, work, play type environment for their employees. Um, so we should consider all of that um, in the plan. Uh, yeah, just a quick clarifying question sure. on that last slide. On the third bullet, yeah. you use the word cap, and to me a cap is a regulatory action that is proactive, and what you really mean is an upward boundary that's going to naturally happen. 
right? Yes, yeah, that's just the limit on how much the, uh, how many uh, traditional office buildings can be converted to labs. Yeah, we can, can sort okay. of fix that language. All right, thank you. Yeah. And just for the record, we don't have a venture capital funding zone. No. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, <laughs> those, uh, you're you're getting into some things that, you know, will take financing beyond what you're going to be able to do in a master plan. But go ahead. Thank you. For the record, Aaron Savage, urban designer for the Mid-County Division Master Plan team. Um, so today I'm going to talk to you about the urban design existing conditions analysis for the Great Seneca Plan. So um, I'll just preface and say that the majority of our urban design analysis is going to heavily focus on the Life Science uh, Center, which you could see here in this map. Um, the original 2010 plan actually separated this area into districts, um, five of them, which are shown here in different colors. So the first one is going to be LLC North, which is shown in that yellow area. Um, this actually consists mostly of mixed-use developments constructed in the last year uh, with apartments as well as retail on the ground floor level. LLC South, which you can see in that uh, green color, um, this is home to the Universities of Shady Grove, not parking, not just parking lots, <laughs> um, and the Treville Village Shopping Center, um, as well as a new biotech facility um, that's going to include um, a, a park as well. LSE Central is shown in that purple area. So this is home to the large life science health-related companies, such as the Adventist Healthcare Hospital, as well as the National Cancer Institute. And then um, LSE West, which you can see in the blue color, um, that is um, home to a small retail shopping center, as well as townhomes. Um, it's also home to the former Public Safety Training Academy, uh, which is going to be redeveloped into uh, multifamily rental units townhomes, as well as activated public spaces and a small retail store. And then finally, uh, Bellward, which is that reddish-orange color. Uh, this is currently home to a historic farmhouse, as well as undeveloped farmland. Um, and this is also uh, eventually going to be redeveloped into additional life science uses um, that include a large public park uh, along Muddy Branch Road towards the west. So um, in terms of the urban form of this area, um, as you can see here on the map on the left, challenges like really large blocks, uh, which are shown here outlined in, in black, uh, specifically in the LSE Central District, inhibit the walkability of this area, also the connectivity and the possibility for active street uh, frontages for buildings. Uh, one of the lar largest blocks that's worth noting is over 2,500 feet long, which is an um, extremely long block that really doesn't facilitate any, storm of, any sort of walkability. Um, the map on the right is showing uh, surface parking lots within the LSC area, and surface parking lots limit the possibility for, you know, a, a lot of things uh, such as active green space, as well as contributing to the heat island effect, um, and their imperviousness also contributes to uh, water runoff as well. So it's worth noting that, uh, oops, that's uh, okay, 26% uh, or 164 acres um, of this particular area um, is covered in surface parking lots. Um, in comparison, only about 5% of all urban areas in the U.S. Um, are covered in surface parking lots. So there's obviously a really large concentration here that, you know, we need to, we, I think we need to do something about. So um, this slide, uh, we're showing a scale comparison of the Life Science Center on top of Washington, D.C., as well as Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, so um, the first one on the left is going to be Washington, D.C., and I feel like this is important. A lot of us are obviously familiar with D.C., but you can just sort of see the scale and how massive this area is. It basically goes from the National Mall past uh, DuPont and Logan Circle, 
Um, so it is just in an enormous area. Uh, and the map on the right is showing Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge um, is actually one of the largest life science clusters in the US. Um, and when you overlay the LSC uh, roads on top of it, you can just really see the scale and how uh, much smaller their block sizes are compared to ours. Um, the average block size in Cambridge is around 500 feet long. And um, you know, compared to the, one of the longest in ours, which is about 2,500 feet long. So um, you know, it is quite a big difference. So now I'm going to um, pass it off to Chuck, and he's going to talk about parks. Thank you, Aaron. Chuck Kynes with the Parks Department, Park Planning and Stewardship, for the record. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today are the existing parks uh, in the plan area and around the plan area, and also talk about sort of the approach uh, for, for park planning. Um, so, you know, what is park planning? Uh, park planners look at um, the distribution of parks. We want to make sure that the right parks are in the right places with the right amenities uh, and facilities and also ensure that people have access to these parks and that the parks are equitably uh, distributed uh, as much as we can. Uh, we are guided by the PROS uh, 2022 plan, which was adopted by the board or approved by the board uh, back in June. It's brand new. Uh, it's also guided by Thrive um, 2050, and it's informed by uh, what we call the Energized Public Spaces Functional Master Plan uh, analysis tool, which you'll see on the next slide. So. Uh, what I want to talk about here on this first slide is the distribu distribution of parks. Uh, the way we view parks is um, commission parks. We're primarily focused on commission parks because that's what the planning board uh, has uh, control and authority over. But we also want to look at uh, how different plan areas are served by other parks and, and open spaces. So what you see here um, in, in red is the outline of the plan area. There are not many commission parks in the plan area. However, uh, that being said, uh, this plan area is well served by parkland in general, uh, whether it be state parkland, uh, municipal parks in the city of Rockville or Gaithersburg in the town of Washington Grove, um, but there is not much uh, commission parkland in this area. The par commission parkland that is in this area is either undeveloped or underdeveloped, uh, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, the land uh, is, is sitting um, undeveloped, uh, not vacant, as some people would call it. Uh, we call it undeveloped. Um, some, some of it is uh, intentional uh, for natural resource uh, and stewardship purposes, but some of it has some potential for new development, and we'll get into that um, later in the plan. Um, but what I wanted to talk about uh, on the next slide is... Um, the Energized Public Spaces Functional Master Plan Analysis Tool. So this is what we, this is the tool that we use to sort of uh, analyze supply, demand, level of service uh, for the plan area. And what I want to draw your attention to primarily is the, the map on the right, uh, which is showing um, uh, deficits, uh, what we're calling, what we used to call deficits, they're now called experience improvement areas. Uh, these are areas that we feel need either additional parks or additional open space uh, or active social or contemplative uh, experience improvements. So what, what our level of service analysis in this area shows preliminarily is that there's a need for rectangular athletic fields, pickleball courts, community gardens, dog parks, skate parks, cricket fields, and volleyball courts. And what we strive to achieve is a balance of active social and contemplative experiences. Contemplative experiences are primarily um, 
nature-based experiences, but could also be um, in an urban park, uh, a place that you go to, to relax uh, and uh, soak in nature. So that's all I have. I'm going to hand it off to Alex to talk about transportation. Good morning. For the record, Alex Rixey, transportation planner with the Mid-County Division. Um, yeah, I just want to give a characterization of the existing conditions regarding transportation in the area. Um, starting off with the existing roadways, um, in the Life Sciences Center, uh, the area is generally characterized by wide, multi-lane roadways. Um, as Aaron noted earlier, long distances between intersections, and you can see that the buildings are separated from the street by surface parking lots. Um, Treville Gateway Drive on the bottom left is one exception to that general trend. Um, you see the retail fronting the street, narrower um, two-lane roadway. Um, on the next slide, I just want to really emphasize, again, the, the large blocks, and especially from the pedestrian experience, thinking about protected crossings. Um, protected crossings are places where uh, vehicular traffic is controlled, either by um, a full signalized intersection or an always-stop controlled intersection. Um, and the chart on the left is showing in, in the dashed lines the the um, maximum protected crossing spacing specified by the Complete Streets Design Guide, um, which depending on the context ranges from 400 to 600 feet. And you can see that in the, uh, in the LSC area, the distances are much longer than that. There's um, one block where they would meet those um, specifications, but um, typical distances are much longer, up to 3,000, even 3,700 feet in one location. Um, and again, just to drive that home, the central part of the LSC is about 275 acres, and within that whole area, there's only one protected crossing. So you can imagine the, the challenges in, in walking through such a large area. Um, on the next slide, um, people commuting to the area. There are more than 20,000 people who commute daily to the Life Sciences Center, um, and many of those commutes cover long distances. So the yellowish-orange dots on the map show the estimated origins of, of trips to the Life Sciences Center, which is shown in the red outline. Um, and the blue outline shows a 45-minute drive commute shed to the Life Sciences Center. So you can see a lot of long-distance trips. Um, and I really want to make the comparison to the next slide of the 45-minute travel shed for transit, which is uh, notably smaller, um, although you still have folks traveling relatively long distances by transit to reach the site as well. Um, on the next slide, um, there are some efforts currently underway. I just wanted to highlight some of the things that are ongoing right now in the area to, to help to address this. Um, MCDOT is advancing the Great Seneca Transit Network, um, targeting summer 2024, the last we heard, for opening these lines. Um, this would be uh, including a battery electric bus charging station at the Treville Transit Center. Um, some of this happening in dedicated right-of-way um, through the Life Sciences Center, and this would help to improve connectivity between the Life Sciences Center um, neighboring uh, areas and then ultimately the Shady Grove Metro. Um, and then last but not least, I wanted to highlight um, bicycle conditions in the area. Um, the, the map on the right shows the level of traffic stress, um, which ranges from you know, very, very low stress to higher moderate stress shown in red. And um, there are some dedicated facilities, um, side paths in the area that create a low stress bicycling experience. Um, but because of the large blocks and limited facilities within those areas, there are still some challenges in a lot of areas shown with, with high stress. Um, and I just wanted to note that the Life Sciences uh, Center Loop Trail is undergoing planning right now to help to provide uh, additional low-stress bicycle connectivity. Except if you're crossing Key West, it's high stress. Yes, yeah, and I, I didn't emphasize that on the pedestrian piece either, but there are generally pretty comfortable sidewalks and side paths, but at the crossings, the stress is extremely high, so that's definitely something that we're going to be looking into. Thank you. Um, with that, I'll turn it over to Steve Finley to talk about environmental issues. Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, for the record, Steve Finley with the Mid-County Planning Division. 
Uh, we started with Thrive Montgomery 2050 that identifies several environmental priorities uh, for our focus uh, in when we're working on master plans. Three of these are long-standing issues that we've, we've worked on for a long time, water quality, air quality, and the protection of biological diversity. Uh, water quality and air quality obviously still need our attention in all of our master planning. There's an increased importance uh, given to the preservation of biological diversity based on some studies that show some alarming trends in the loss of biological diversity uh, nationally and, and internationally. But in addition to that, uh, through Thrive, we've added several other areas of focus. Uh, obviously, climate change is, is a major area of focus that we need to focus on, um, including our uh, planning department's commitment to respond to the recommendations in the county's climate action plan, and also uh, our new requirement under County Bill 3-22 to complete climate assessments for our master plans, including uh, making recommendations for community resilience. Uh, in addition, we're focusing on two more closely related issues, human health and environmental justice. So following this guidance in Thrive, uh, our environmental existing conditions analysis focuses on uh, the, getting the data and background that we need to formulate master plan recommendations to address these issues. And I also want to note that uh, many of these issues are, are very closely interrelated. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so one of the important things to note about the watersheds in the Great Seneca Plan area is that they all drain to the Potomac River uh, upstream of the Potomac Water Filtration Plant, which is the uh, major uh, source of drinking water for Montgomery County. So focus on water quality in the plan area is very important. Uh, also note that the Piney Branch Special Protection Area extends into the uh, southern portion of the LSC South District. Uh, the county established uh, special protection areas to protect areas of uh, high water quality, and these areas have extra requirements for minimizing new impervious surfaces and controlling stormwater runoff. Uh, next slide. Uh, we've also measured the forest and uh, non-forest tree canopy coverage in the Great Seneca Plan area. Uh, tree cover has been closely correlated with, with both water quality and air quality, and it's gained new importance uh, for its role in sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and mitigating urban heat island effect by providing shade and evapotranspirational cooling, and also uh, new evidence that it, uh, there are a lot of benefits for human health. Uh, next slide. Uh, there's a seam of uncommon bedrock called serpentinite that stretches uh, into the LSC South, West, and Bellward districts. Uh, this kind of bedrock has chemical properties that create unique plant communities in the area, resulting in the occurrence of some rare, threatened, and endangered species. The Serpentine Barrens Park, just south of the Great Seneca Plan area, actually contains a plant community that has been deemed globally rare. Uh, next slide. Uh, this slide shows the result of a heat mapping study that was performed just last August. Uh, the green areas are cooler, and then they transition to yellow, orange, and red as the surface temperatures increase. Uh, the hottest areas are correlated with large impervious surfaces, while cooler areas tend to have more tree cover. Uh, just note in terms of human health effects that extreme heat events actually kill more people than any other weather-related events. Uh, so uh, focus on 
uh, hot areas in the plan, uh, particularly as the climate tends to be warming, is, is an important thing to, to take care of. Uh, next. Uh, also new to our analysis is the use of the EJ screen tool uh, that's created by the United States Environmental Protection Agency to look at environmental justice issues. Uh, certain health outcomes and other environmental quality of life issues uh, in this tool have been correlated with demographic factors to identify where race, income, and opportunity overlap with disparities in outcomes that are associated with environmental factors. We're just learning to use this tool, uh, but preliminary analysis from our first look shows that the Londonary, Londonderry area along I-270 is more affected by several environmental justice issues than the rest of the Great Seneca Plan area. And now it goes back to Marin. Thanks, Steve. Um, finally, we just wanted to touch on education in the area. Um, as we mentioned, the universities at Shady Grove is located in this area. And um, I believe as Commissioner uh, Hill had mentioned, the um, Montgomery County Community College of Germantown is not in the plan area, but just up the road from this area. Um, in terms of public schools, uh, you can see because of the unique geography of this uh, plan area, there are many uh, elementary, middle schools, and high schools um, from MCPS that serve the plan area. You can see their boundaries um, on the map. Um, I think one of the things, there are two important things to, to note. One, all of these uh, geographies, or I'm sorry, like boundaries for uh, high schools are going to be shaken up and changed very soon um, with the addition of the uh, Crown High School, which is um, right next to, if you can see where my mouse is on the map, oh, yep, here it is, um, right below, uh, or right next to the uh, downtown crown and adjacent to the uh, life sciences center. So that will shift everything around. And I think the one more important thing to note from an equity standpoint is uh, the, the free and reduced um, meal service, which is used as a proxy for kind of income um, of students, and we call that the farms rate, um, is very different between these schools. So some of the schools, um, primarily those that feed into um, Wooten, have rate, farms rates of 8%, whereas we see rates of over 65% for some of the other, uh, other schools, especially those that are served by Gaithersburg, um, Gaithersburg High School. So just the disparities um, of uh, in income uh, that these schools are serving. Um, and that concludes can I, for... Can I stick oh, yeah. on one thing there? Because um, it occurred to me that there might be a useful category here to put reserve school sites. And you mentioned the one at Bellward Farm. Um, but I also happen to know a good chunk of Maddie Stepanek Park is reserved for a middle school, and a good chunk of Falls Grove Park is reserved for an elementary school. And those were all cited within the park um, items here. But it, it seems to me... Uh, distinctive feature of this particular area that there are so many reserve sites here that are yet to be utilized by the school system. Um, and that it seemed to me to fit in that, in that list of schools you have to say, and, and you mentioned, yeah, the high school system, you know, that, that'll be felt all the way to Churchill as everything kind of moves over, right? And that comes to pass. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, part of our recurring meetings with um, MCPS, um, that Jason Sartori leads is uh, coordination about uh, you know needs and also potential existing um, 
uh, holding sites or um, not yet utilized sites. So that will definitely play into our uh, research and recommendations in the, in the future as we move along with this plan. Um, finally, that concludes our existing conditions. And just uh, to give a quick update on our community engagement, I wanted to outline just what our strategy is. Um, you heard the planning board heard a little bit about the, our strategy a few months ago um, when it came to give an update previously. But I just wanted to emphasize that our community strategy has really been uh, meeting people where they are. And that means both physically uh, where their persons are, whether they're on their way to work or stopping to grab food at the grocery store um, or in their homes, to where they are in community. Where do they already gather? Who are the, what are the organizations that are already um, serving the people in the plan area? And then informationally, everyone is coming at, to this process from a different point, from a different background of information from different languages, from different um, abilities to uh, interact with the planning department. Um, so, you know, for physically, we're looking at the ways that we're meeting people where they are is by door knocking, literally going and knocking on people's doors and saying, please tell us what are your concerns, what are your needs, what do you want? And this effort, we've worked with everyday canvassing to knock on approximately 5,000 multifamily doors in the plan in and adjacent to the plan area. Um, we don't yet have the, that uh, feedback yet, as you can imagine. It's a mass massive processing um, time for that, but expect to have it within the next couple weeks. Um, we've done pop-ups, like I said, outside of grocery stores, Dunkin' Donuts, um, at events, outside workplaces, um, and at the Mana Food Distribution site um, at universities at Shady Grove. We've put up yard signs throughout the plan area with an ability for people to text um, ideas, thoughts, um, both in Spanish and English, um, to, that will then show up on a virtual map. And people can also uh, access that map and add comments through our website. And having um, online questionnaires or surveys that people can fill out from their homes. Um, in community, we've worked with partners partner organizations uh, to reach out to people. We had uh, told you about our meeting with the uh, Chinese uh, Cultural and Community Service Center, um, but we have other organizations that we're partnering with as well. We've also hosted our own meetings, um, both virtually and in person, um, that people can attend, as well as focus groups, some of which uh, Bilal touched on during his presentation, outreach to churches, and we are still looking for more ways to, to connect with people throughout that in community. Finally, informationally, as uh, I said, we recognize that people are coming at this from different, uh, different perspectives. We offer, um, we've offered translation on some of our materials um, when we're able to, as well as interpretation at meetings um, so far in, uh, uh, in Mandarin, and we will have one in um, Spanish. And, um, and we've produced educational me uh, materials. Um, you can see a small little clip of it. Um, and then videos as well, so that people can relate to the plan in different mediums and learn not just about the plan area, but greater planning themes that might not be familiar to them, um, such as the uh, public realm or urban design. Um, and with that, I would like to turn it over to uh, Pamela to present what we've done so far. Thank you, Marin. For the record, my name is Pamela Nkwantibisa. I'm a graduate student at the University of Maryland, interning with Mid-County. And I must say, it's a great honor to be presenting to the board for the first time today. 
So as Martin said, we have been in the community and we have met the people where they are and we plan to continue this process as their feedback plays a major role in the process. And we have had a total of four visioning meetings, two in person and two virtual meetings, with each meeting having an attendance region between 10 and 40. To mention but a few, out of this, from these meetings, we had major concerns in transportation, and these concerns were mostly centered around um, traffic congestion, public transits, the frequency of public transits, and also um, the connections of these public, pu public transits, sorry. And lack of connectivity in the neighborhood. Some people also mentioned that there are a few sidewalks and bike lanes, and even with a few, some most of them are uncomfortable to walk on or even ride on. With the urban development um, comments, most of them focused on having outdoor spaces for relaxation, and some of them also highlighted the need to improve the streetscape that I believe we have started with the complete streetscape design guidelines and which I believe we will incorporate in the preliminary recommendations coming up. With the environment, we also received com some comments um, on preserving the green spaces in the area, um, tree canopy, and also improving the water quality in the area. And with the parks and recreation, and most of the respondents also shared the need to have like parks with amenities in the area, amenities such as volleyball courts, um, tennis ball courts, and then pickleball, which was mentioned in almost all the meetings that we had, and also community gardens and a dog park. Next slide. So in ensuring equitable participation, we also have an active questionnaire um, which we use at some of our pop-up activity, pop-up events. And through this questionnaire, we have collect collected some demographic data for 97 respondents. And at the various visioning meetings, we did not collect um, demographic data. And we are relying on the data from every collected by Everyday Canvassing, which we have not received yet, but I believe we will receive soon. And so from the online questionnaire, majority of the respondents are Caucasian or white people, um, African-American or black, Hispanic or Latinx, Asian or um, Pacific Islander, and a few Native Americans, and others too from other ethnicities. Next slide. So we have heard from the community and we continue to listen to the community. So some of the things that we've heard are, we've heard that the community um, needs, I mean, public safety in the community seems to be on the rise now where we've had people complaining about um, people being attacked here and there. And also we've had like to promote the rich culture of the place. Some residents have suggested um, designing the place by putting public art to connect certain places in the community. Another attendance also shared the need to preserve some natural resources in the community. Another feedback that we received to suggested that the need to have more green spaces and large parks with certain amenities like the volleyball courts, tennis courts, and then the pickleball. And we've also heard that the public transit in the area is not frequent and certain residents find it very difficult to walk in their own neighborhoods and in their own communities. And with the entertainment aspects of it, most of the people 
have shared, one person actually shared that we, there should be a need to have a, a space where people can have festivals, fairs, and also like farmers markets and pop-ups. And referencing some of the transportation concerns that have been mentioned in some of the meetings, um, one participant mentioned that there's a need to improve the transit frequency and connections. And lastly, we have heard that it would be nice. It would be nicer to actually have more housing density and also mixed-use housing in the area. Next slide, please. So as we continue to engage with the community, we have upcoming events, upcoming community meetings with the Chinese Culture and Community Service Center, a meeting with, at the universities at Shady Grove. We also have a meeting with Identity upcoming, and we plan to launch another online feedback tool in addition to what we already have, which is the online survey, and also we have a React map, which has already been launched. So we plan to do this to collect more feedback from the community. Thank you, and I would like to turn it over to Marin. Just one thing, it looks like uh, from, thank you for the presentation, it looks like from your online uh, survey that you are short mm -hmm. on representation from the Asian community, which mm -hmm. is something that it looks like you're going to get further on. Um, I, I think it's 16 or 17 percent Asian in the area, and, yeah, and you were less than 10 or something. It's, yeah, it's, um, I think it's actually even closer to 20 percent, and that's why we're, we think that there's not one single of you know, course. outreach strategy that is right for everyone. So that's why we're trying to cover all our bases. And I think as we'll see, and we hope to later on present a more full community engagement report when we have uh, additional information, but that will it'll be interesting to see where we get representation from different demographic right. groups um, and what type of uh, strategy is the best to reach them. Um, so now we are nearing the end, yay. Um, just yay. to to say, you know, this again is where we are in the process. So what our next steps are, are continuing those, um, the community outreach and engagement and beginning to work on our preliminary recommendations, which we hope to have, um, as I said, by uh, kind of April, May uh, timeline to present to the board. And part of the um, engagement strategy will also be, as I said, going back to the community with our preliminary recommendations to make sure that we're hearing people and that they feel heard and they can see the direct connection between what their conversations have been with us and the preliminary recommendations, as well as you know that balance of uh, including the uh, consultant work that we've had, particularly in transportation and the research that um, everyone on our team has done. And I know it can be a little, oh, and this is um, needs to be slid up, but I know it can be a little difficult to have all of these people presenting, but I really did want to show that it is a team effort and that we have a lot of people, even some who did not present today, who have really contributed to this uh, massive effort, not just in the content of the information, but really in the community outreach and engagement, which um, has been a great experience for this master plan. Um, people going out and literally doing the door knocking, staffing the pop-ups, and being at these community meetings. So with that, I want to thank you, um, and that is the end of our presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, astounding presentation for an area that split up, um, you know, uh, and I probably walked every every sidewalk within the um, the, the 
the district that you showed there. Um, uh, and I can tell you where it's dangerous or not if you ever want to know. Um, but uh, do anybody else have any comments? No? I, seeing none? Uh, seeing one. <laughs> of course. Right. Um, I'd like to express um, a concern about patience with the development of this area. And, and here's where it comes from. So I've gotten concerned that we're in some ways losing mixed, mixed use and, and, um, and its related planning, right? Um, and a lot of that has to do with the office market is soft, the retail market is soft, housing is booming. So we're tending, and I know in, uh, I, I'll say I've been a commissioner in Rockville, and it, a lot of the office space in Rockville is all converting to housing. And that's because of the housing demand. But in the process, we're losing what I consider kind of be the three-legged stool nature of mixed use, right? Because two of those legs are getting shorter, one's getting longer, and the stool doesn't stand up anymore. And it strikes me with the Life Science Center particularly, it's going to take time for that really to come to fruition. And it seems like one of its major assets for the businesses involved is that density and proximity and the synergy that's happening among all these companies. But if we get, if we respond too much to the housing demand that is, is serious and it's, you know, it, that's a good part of what Thrive is about, right, is, is meeting the demand for people that want to come here. But this may not be a place to apply that, right, because we need to save the space to let that synergy happen in the life sciences centers. Um, and, and just, you know, responding to that demand and putting lots of housing components in what seems to be unutilized space will, in the longer term, damage that effect that we're after. And I just want to make sure that that's coming into the, the, the master planning processes cycle. Yeah, I appreciate that comment. And I think that um, what we've seen is that, you know, because this area is particularly strong with that office market that Bilal talked about, we're not seeing conversions or um, attempts to convert to housing as much as some other areas of the country, county are because it is so strong. Um, and um, Bilal had also mentioned Alexandria Real Estate um, Equities Company, which is the uh, largest property owner in the Life Sciences Center. And they have um, they have more plans uh, that I think will be coming toward before the board that are for life science um, expansion, uh, life science um, office and lab expansion as well. Um, and I think that, you know, there we have heard from people the need for more housing. And we have seen that there is this, um, the vacancy rates are extremely low in this area and the rents are higher than the county, you know, overall for housing. One thing I think that we have noted as um, a team is that, you know, there is space for very limited um, retail, but that that is not a focus of our, um, of our plan either because of nearby strong retails such as Falls Grove and Rockville, downtown Crown, um, and these adjacent areas that really, um, you know, both uh, from an analysis perspective but also from an anecdotal uh, resident perspective, the office workers and the residents use. So they're like, they don't need the same uh, mix, you know, within the plan area because they have it within the region and people don't live their lives according to our boundaries, thank goodness. Um, but I think that, um, you know, we do see the promotion uh, and the support of the uh, office and lab space in the area as an important, very important component of this plan. Yeah, and, and just one more peculiarity of lab space that I'm aware of, and that is that security 
of lab spaces is becoming a bigger issue within industry. And that may have a little bit of effect of what the built environment that they find most desirable is. Um, and of course, they're, they're, you, you mentioned water quality on the environmental thing. You know, how do you deal with the water quality coming out of these places that are dealing with hazardous things is, is another peculiarity of that life science lab process. On that happy note, uh, uh, Commissioner Presley, did you, you had your hand up for a while. Did you want to say something? They answered my question. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I, I, thank you for the presentation. Like I said, fascinating. Uh, uh, I can't say I'm uh, completely uh, familiar with this place. Uh, so I look forward to uh, progress in the future. And, th and thank you to my compatriots who I used to work with a million years ago. Thank you. Thank you. Are we ready? No.
We're live. This is a continuation of the morning session, January 19th, 2023, of the Montgomery County Planning Board. We are on item seven, Falkland North Preliminary Plan Amendment, uh, Preliminary Plan uh, 1-2007-056-B. Uh, and I'll turn it over to staff for uh, a fast report on, on extending the validity period for this project. Yes, sir. Um, as I understand, we're behind schedule, so I'm going to go pretty fast, but let me know if I miss anything that is important for your decision. Um, so good afternoon. For the record, Katie Mencarini in the Down County Division presenting preliminary plan 12007056B, Falkland North and Silver Spring. The applicant is requesting a two-year extension of the preliminary plan validity period. Um, as just a note here, the preliminary plan validity period expired on October 28, 2022. However, the applicant's ex application was accepted on September 22, 2022, so it's all good. Okay. Now, before we talk about this specific application, I'm just going to have a very quick refresher on what preliminary plan um, validity periods are. So first of all, it's the time in which an applicant has to record a plat. And that's really important because if it's not recorded within that time, the preliminary plan is null and void, and the applicant cannot move forward with their preliminary plan, site plans, they can't pull any permits, they have to start over, resubmit, pay all the fines, we get again. Okay. So typically those are about five years for multi-phase projects, which this one is. Now, grounds for extensions are covered in the subdivision regs. One of the criteria that makes an application eligible for, the, um, uh, eligible for this is if there are delays by the government, so long as those delays aren't also being contributed by the applicant. So that's one big thing. Um, generally speaking, the other thing we need to keep in mind here is that you cannot extend a preliminary plan's validity period beyond the APF validity period for that project. So that's just something that's going to come up again and again with this application. Okay. You can extend it as many times as necessary as long as all of these grounds for extensions are met each time. Now let's talk about the specific application. So here we have a site. This is located in the northwest quadrant of the Silver Springs Central Business District. Specifically, this is located at the northeast corner of 16th Street and East West Highway. This is part of a multi-site, multi-phase project called the Falklands Collectively, but this is specifically Falkland North. What you're going to see here is we've, as I mentioned, we have 16th Street to the west and East West Highway to the south. We also have a lot of trail infrastructure, not trail, sorry, transit infrastructure to the east. We do have trails, but that's next. Um, so we've got the purple line, we've got the red line, we've got the Capitol Crescent Trail alignment, there's a lot of stuff going on. If at some point you still haven't figured out where we are, we have the Elizabeth Square um, pool and a aquatic center and multi-residential uh, building here, so that hopefully everyone's oriented. Um, and so we have a 9.77 acre property, it's zoned CR3C7.75 R3H45T, and it is subject to this 2022 Silver Spring Downtown and Adjacent Community Sector Plan. Now, when this came in, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I need to go over some previous approvals. Let's just skirt through this. Okay, so first preliminary plan was approved November 18th, 2010. It was for a multi-phase project, very large mixed-use development. About five years later, the Planning Board approved preliminary plan amendment 12007056A, and that creates one lot and an outlot, which you're seeing here um, outlined in red, for multifamily residential uses. That validity period went until October 28th, 2020. In July of 2020, the County Council adopted subdivision regulation 2001, which provided a two-year legislative extension to all of the regulatory approvals countywide. That applied here, so they got another extension to October 28, 2022. That brings us to the subject 
subject application. They would like an extension because, as we mentioned earlier, there's the purple line in the area. I'm going to get onto that in the next slide, so I'll put a pin in that. Um, but the proposed extension, as proposed, would align with the current validity period, and it would be um, an additional 22 years, not 20 years, two years. Let's make that very clear for the record, two years. So that would be October 28, 2024. Now, as I mentioned, here we have um, the purple line. It is currently under construction. Um, I took that photo just a couple of weeks ago, standing right about here on the property. So what has happened is the applicant has deeded over that outlot A, which they were supposed to do. Everything's great. That was finalized in 2018. Come to July 2020, the applicant gets a letter on our next slide here, from MTA saying, hey, we have a temporary construction easement, which is shown in this blue hatching over here, and we don't know when we're going to be done, but we just need to make you aware of it. So kind of understandably, the applicant came to us saying like, hey, I want to record our plan. We definitely think everything's still valid. We don't want to change anything about the preliminary of the site plan, but we also don't want to record a plat with a temporary easement that we're just going to have to re-record later in the future. So if you could, we'd like to um, extend just the preliminary plan validity period up to what the um, subdivision regs will allow, and then we'll, we'll see where it goes. So as most people in this room probably know, the purple line isn't slated to be operational until 2026. So I'm anticipating a question that we're like, hey, is two years enough? Okay, probably not, right? It's possible the construction could be finished around here, right, in this area, because we got a long stretch to go. We got several stations. However, it's probably unlikely they probably will be back again, but because they're not asking for an extension of the APF validity at the same time, they can only ask for two years. That's both the min and the max here. So. That's our proposal. It is literally just this. Nothing about the plan is supposed to change. Um, I do have to point out a couple of things. We did get a call during this review period. So the friends of Sligo Creek got notice about it, and they saw that there are two trees on the site that were meant to be transplanted as part of the forest conservation um, exemption, or sorry, the forest conservation plan, and they were not transplanted. They were removed. And technically, we don't really look at that during this. However, we did say, okay, we know this is a problem, and you can't move on your site plan until that's rectified, so we added a condition of approval. You'll see in the staff report there were two conditions of approval, one that recognizes this request for an extension. The second one is you got to get your stuff with the trees figured out before you can move forward with your plat. So that is being tied up with a bow. We talked with French of uh, Sigel Creek afterwards. They were satisfied with it. We haven't received any written comments since, so I think we're on the right, um, on the right page there. Otherwise, all of the noticing requirements have been met. All of the findings have been met. Um, yeah, I would... I think it's clear that there is a government agency that is keeping them from being able to record their plat. They have done everything they're supposed to do. They're not creating any obstructions. So with that, we recommend approval with the two conditions as enumerated in the site, uh, staff report. And I will note this is a public hearing with no public, no speakers uh, yes, sir. before us. And that's uh, all I got. I, I just want to note that you could probably, you know, do auctioneering on the side <laughs> if you have <laughs> And we, uh, we appreciate the thoroughness and, and speed of that uh, presentation. Uh, any commissioners? I, I'll entertain a motion if we don't have any discussion. Mr. Chairman, I move, uh, sorry, I move approval of uh, a preliminary plan 12007056B with the with the conditions that staff has recommended. Well, here a second. Second. Seeing no discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Five to zero. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Good afternoon. This is a continuation of the Planning Board meeting on January 19th, 2023. We are on item 10, uh, Bill 3322, Capital Improvements Program, Affordable Housing Feasibility Study Dash Required. Uh, we'll hear from staff on a recommendation. Good afternoon, Planning Board. For the record, Lisa Gavoni again with Countywide Planning and Policy. Um, from time to time, the council introduces housing policy, transportation policy, and we bring it to the board because we feel like it's important to have your input and to really send that those comments to the plan uh, to the county council. Um, and the planning department has also done a lot of work on co-location, Mr. Holtzkin, in our research department. And I think this is an important bill that kind of highlights the. <laughs> I suddenly got a lot louder. The bill kind of the bill highlights a lot of the increasing nature and focus on co-location in the county. And I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Holdscomb right now. Greetings, Planning Board. Uh, for the record, Nick Holdscomb, Research and Strategic Projects Division. Uh, this is my first time in front of this board, so uh, thank you for your service, and I hope it's a good experience. Um, 
So Bill 3322 would require the county executive to submit an affordable housing feasibility study to the council for certain capital projects, establish a review process for the council to determine project feasibility for co-location of affordable housing, and generally would amend county law regarding the analysis of capital projects. Uh, the bill is being sponsored by Council Vice President Friedson, and while the public hearing uh, was a few days ago, work sessions will begin next week. Um, yeah, thank you. The role of planning and co-location is detailed in the staff report, so I'll just note that the planning board has a largely undefined role in co-location and is largely in an advisory capacity, uh, but we do have three processes that allow us to collaborate and help set a vision. Um, those include master planning, development review, and um, this, as well as the CIP. And finally, I'll just point out, uh, in case you haven't seen, that the county executive's recommendations for budget uh, fiscal year 24 lists an item for substantial funding for the Wheaton Arts and, Arts and Cultural Center, uh, which would be a co-location project between the county and um, MHP for affordable housing. Uh, so with that, I'll kick it back over to Ms. Gavoni. Thank you, Thank Nicholas. You. Um, so I'm going to go over a little bit about how Bill 3322 is structured, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, so under current law, the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, is there required to provide an affordable housing assessment for each applicable capital project that is in facility planning to the County Council during the transmission of the CIP. However, by the time the housing assessment and capital project are included in the CIP for the council's evaluation of whether to co-locate affordable housing with the new project, there's already potential barriers, site selection, the cost of construction. Um, as the planning board, I'm sure, I'm sure you understand that there are a lot of barriers to, um, to co-location and the development of affordable housing. And so what Bill 3322 really does is it requires the county executive to submit an affordable housing feasibility study prior to facility planning development of program requirements, site selection, or land acquisition of any capital project. So what Bill 3322 does is it adds two definitions. The first is an affordable housing feasibility study, which is an analysis of any applicable capital project that includes an evaluation of co-location of affordable housing at a library, a rec center, police station, fire station, et cetera. There also includes the definition for applicable capital project, which means any proposed building project administered by the Department of General Services, DGS, or Parking Management Division of the Department of Transportation. The bill also adds, updates the requirements um, for the feasibility, and I, I won't go through all nine of them, but they are listed in the staff report. So here's kind of where it, where it can end up. So after the council receives the study submitted by the county executive, the council must review the study within 30 days. The study will provide a basis for consideration of co-locating affordable housing in any new CIP project, and after reviewing the study, the council will decide whether to approve or disapprove of the analysis presented in the feasibility study. If the affordable housing study is approved with the, the Department of General Services, they move forward in its normal capital project development process working with DHCA, HOC, and other private or nonprofit housing development partners. If the council disproves the executive branch analysis, the council can direct the executive branch to perform additional work and come back to the council with a capital project that includes co-location. The council can also improve, approve the executive's plan for co-location. They can waive any requirements or agree with the executive branch that housing is not feasible within that project. 
If the project is determined feasible, it would be included in the CIP for normal budget review to receive funding. And um, finally, Bill 3322 includes a waiver provision if the council to determines the project would result in the loss of a site, require an emergency appropriation, or experience further delay that's not in the best interest of the public. So we, we, we'll get to the point, but we largely support the bill, but we do have a, one clarifying question. Um, as, as we mentioned earlier, there's, this, requires, this would require an affordable housing feasibility study, but there's already an assessment later on in that process. What we're trying to understand is how those two would work together. We want to understand you know, if the council agrees that co-location is not feasible, does OMB still have to do that assessment? And so we think that you know, during the work session on Monday, we could clarify the role, the relationship between those, those two. Um, and you know, finally, you know, Mr. Holdscomb touched upon this, but the, the role of the planning board in this bill will, will largely remain unchanged. I think that it provides another, another, um, what's the word, another avenue for collaboration. It really strengthens the ability of the county to look at every last site in the county for the feasibility of a co-location of affordable housing. And so finally, while we, the, the planning staff, we had that one question that we think um, we would like to clarify between the relationship between the feasibility and the existing housing assessment. We do support the intent of the bill and recommend that the planning board send a letter of support for the bill to the county council in time for the work session on Monday. So you don't see the need to uh, amend the legislation to address your concern about a, a full housing project uh, that started out as a co-location or something like that? Sure, if the planning board would like, we could propose language um, in our transmittal letter of how we think we could clarify the, the um, text as it's currently written. I mean, so, I mean the, it could be worked out at work session, but I do agree with you, Chair, that it would probably be in the best interest to provide uh, draft language to the, the council. To address that concern. Uh, anybody else? I have one more thing. Um, I, I, uh, this is going to be a little off the wall here, but um, under the definition of affordable housing feasibility study, it lists four co-location possibilities as examples. And two of those are police stations and fire stations, which kind of suggests we're, we're advocating for building residential next to fire stations, which strikes me as almost an incompatible proximity, right? No one wants to live next to a fire station that's operating 24 hours a day. And I, or let me put it, I wouldn't want to do that, and I don't think that you know, what normal residents want should be that different than affordable housing requirements. So I'm just wondering whether there are some better examples than using those, such as uh, office space, uh, transportation centers, park school sites that might be better examples than fire stations and, and police stations because it seems like we're saying, hey, that's a good place to do it. So. Sure. Uh, I think that, you know, I think that will probably be part of the evaluation too. Um, I think that there have been, you know, examples throughout the country of co-locations with fire stations. I certainly understand, you know, I probably wouldn't want to live on top of a fire station, but we do have a limited amount of land in the county, and so we do need to examine every opportunity, and um, I think that that's one thing that we could definitely maybe put in the, the transmittal letter if you feel like it's appropriate. I, I understand entirely what you're saying, and that's the whole point of the bill, right, is right. investigate co-location possibilities. But it strikes me that the enumerated things in that definition are examples, and I just think right. those two are bad examples, and we can 
come That's up, fair. you know, office space and tra transportation centers. I think it's a great opportunity. You're right next to the, the possibly the transportation you want to use. Um, that's my point. It's just it's, it's it's more a wording thing, but it also I think implies an intention that we possibly don't mean. Uh, all right. If I, I can, have every commissioner wants to speak here. Um, uh, commissioner Branson. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out that we currently have a development in uh, what is it? Uh, New Hampshire Avenue and and twenty nine. Um, yes. Is the new. Um, a police station. I can't remember if it's third district or fifth district. I get my districts mixed up when it comes to the police stations. But anyway, um, and and right across the parking lot from the police station is um, is uh, affordable housing. I think it's a senior building, but it's definitely affordable housing. I think it's mm -hmm. called Victory Crossing. Um, so, yeah. so you know, I I, I do understand that uh, it may not be an optimal location for you but but it, it might be okay for other people um and as far as the fire thing is concerned um you know um i see a lot of houses near fire stations i wouldn't want to live there either but <laughs> but it's okay for some people uh, what, what i'm suggesting is that if we start taking out um places or public facilities that we wouldn't want to be near then then that that whittles down the places that they have to consider and if we whittle down the places they have to consider when it comes to co-location then we are um, actually putting a limitation on this bill without necessity if it if it becomes necessary that a particular location is not suitable for whatever reason, that's what the feasibility study is for. So so I would suggest that we leave that language there because I don't want to whittle it down before they get to it. I'd like to clarify because you're overconstruing my point. I think we could mm -hmm. I think we could go forward without any mentioned facilities here because the whole point of this bill is about all of them. I'm, my point is just these particular examples suggest that we have an advocacy for that, and I don't think we should be necessarily advocating for those two. And, and if I can just add on, I think the definition of a capital project, which means any proposed building, is inconsistent right. with with the uh, the limitations of an affordable feasibility study. Uh, I, I don't see how those two work. If you mean any, you mean any. Now, you probably mean any more than a million bucks or some, <laughs> I don't, you, you tell me the criteria. I don't know their CIP much. <clears throat> but there's probably some minimal amount. You don't care if they're relocating a pump station or something. But uh, uh, between those two sections, it doesn't work. Because if, if capital project means any proposed building, uh, then it's ridiculous to just say a feasibility is, is study is required with any. But mm. uh, so it needs a little bit rewriting. Uh, Commissioner Presley. Actually, Commissioner Pinheiro has been waiting before me. Oh, so. oh I'm sorry. I, that's okay. I'll I, defer I to you, Mr. Pinheiro. Well, I think, uh, thank you, Commissioner um, Presley. I think uh, uh, Commissioner Branson, 
talked about my the point that I was going to make. I know that project on New Hampshire and 29 uh, Victory uh, Victory Housing, and uh, you know when we think of of um, uh, co-location, it doesn't necessarily have to be on on top. You know, I, in in that case, there's enough space, there's enough land to locate the affordable housing at a distance from the police station. And there's many other examples uh, in Virginia. I mean, we looked at that issue one time. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I I would be in favor of leaving the language as it is right now. I don't think that we need to make a point of uh, whether they're police, fire. I mean, it's 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 not the the only the only other issue I was going to raise is in terms of the feasibility versus the assessment, the housing assessment, maybe when they look at feasibility, they need to look at um, uh, at the the uh, cost of the housing, how much it's going to cost, or whether that's going to be done afterwards by OMB. I'm not really sure what feasibility means in, in these cases, but uh, I, I would be in favor of this, um, of this bill. Just Thank you. Just to note, the feasibility study includes uh, item six, which is protect, projected cost of construction. Um, oh, good, good. Uh, uh, Commissioner Presley. Yes, um, I'm. I'm in agreement um, with Commissioner Hill, <clears throat> just from the perspective that there's no need to call out fire, uh, you know, firehouses and police stations, because it does cover all capital projects. And uh, if I can reword for him, if I understand Mr. Hill, it it does appear as if we're specifically targeting when we say, you know, call that out as the examples. So I, I think we don't need that language in the bill to still provide for the potential that that could happen. I, I think the, uh, the, I, I understand. I think the way to do that is includes an evaluation of co-location of affordable housing at any applicable capital project, and then you define applicable uh, project as any proposed da -da 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 building at some minimum size. You guys tell us that. I don't, you know, again, it might yeah. be too limited. Sure, if I can jump in, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, just to make sure that we capture the comments. Uh, for the, the letter from the board. So two issues. One is that there's a concern about specifying specific types of public facilities. So under the, um, uh, so basically making it just a broader reference to uh, public facilities built through the capital budget, capital process. And then the other piece was the question that you raised, Chair, about essentially the, the threshold of the capital project, uh, because it, it could be something very small, but that's not going to be necessarily applicable for potentially for a housing project. So what we could do at this point, we may not necessarily need to provide specific language, but we can just highlight these issues as questions or issues that the board raised and that we can work with council staff as they, if the, 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 the committee is interested in making those changes, then we can work with council staff on the appropriate language. Okay, great. Along with the point raised by staff, the interrelationship yes okay. yes and that correction too and i'm okay well uh give me advice do you, would you like to spell it out in this legislation or just raise the point 
I think it would be easier at this point, given the time, just to raise the point. Um, and we could provide, you know, bullets of the, basically the three okay. comments, summarize them All right. from the planning board. Everybody okay? I see nods. Yeah. Uh, do we need a formal vote? Uh, can, one more thing. Nope. Staff has asked a question we haven't addressed, which is the question of whether the council uh, decides up front that it doesn't need to do, whether it has to go to the OMB office. Yes, that would be uh, one of the points clarifying the relationship between the yeah, um, initial, the proposed feasibility study and then the assessment, assessment that's done by OMB. Right. And my opinion on that is if the decision has been made in some regard, I don't want to build more regulatory stuff that has to happen after that. So I would go sure. in favor of the idea that once that recommendation is made, it's done. And we, we ran into a similar situation last year when the county council introduced the climate assessments bill, which is now the law. You've all been briefed on how we're going to be implementing it. Uh, but the original bill, uh, it didn't speak to the fact that there was an existing carbon footprint analysis requirement already in the code for master plans. So we actually raised that as, you know, this uh, new climate assessment requirement is very similar to this exi existing requirement. And so subsequently, um, the law that was passed repealed the carbon footprint analysis requirements. So again, at this point, we can just raise the issue and say, you should use this process to make sure there's no duplication um, in terms of the assessment, and then that can be worked out uh, with the bill. Okay, everybody okay? Do you, does staff have enough guidance? Maybe yes. too much? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, it was great guidance, thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, uh, we uh, are going to go uh, upon a motion and approval. Um, I'll, I'll ask the board to go to a closed session. Um, uh, and it's item 11 on our jet, uh, agenda. Uh, the reason I'm asking for the closed session is according to the Maryland Annotated Code, general provision articles, uh, section 3 dash. 305 sub B sub 7 to consult with council to obtain legal advice and eight uh, consult with staff consultants and other individuals about pending or potential litigation topic potential litigation. Can I have a motion to go to closed session? So moved. So moved. Second. Okay, I have a motion and second. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right, we'll, we'll see you, the other commissioners, in a different room. <laughs>
Good afternoon. This is the January 19th, 2023 uh, session of the Planning Board. Uh, we are on item eight, uh, Silver Spring Downtown Adjacent Communities Plan Draft Design Guidelines. This is a briefing by staff. Uh, which way do I turn? Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, yes, we need a motion to, I, I hear I talked about that and I didn't do it. Um, we need a motion to go back into open session. So moved, Mr. Chair. Do I have a second? Second. All those in favor of going back into open session say aye. 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 Okay, four ayes, one absent. Um, oh, no, I'm here. No, no, we're missing Cherie. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Sorry. that's right. It, it, it's a, it wasn't a, uh, an online deficit. It's an in real deficit. Um, okay, so we, uh, the, the planning board did get these uh, des the design guidelines in advance to look over, but now we'll hear from staff on a presentation. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair and Commissioners. For the record, my name is Atara Margulies, and I'm a planner in the Down County Master Planning Division. I'm here today to talk about the Silver Spring Downtown and Adjacent Communities Plan Draft Design Guidelines. Just as a reminder, the last time we were at the board was on December 15th, uh, 2022, where we introduced the guidelines, we summarized the sector plan, and we provided sort of context for this entire effort. So today's presentation is also a briefing, but we're just talking about the draft design guidelines, and we are asking for the board's comments on the document, which, as the chair mentioned, was posted to the board's online agenda for this item as an attachment. Next week, we will come back to the board, uh, and there will be um, public comment of, you know, on the draft uh, at that time, and we will discuss revisions based on the comments we received today from the board, and we will be, uh, we plan to be requesting board approval of the document next week. Uh, related item next week as well, just to remind everyone of the schedule, we'd be bringing forward the nominations for the design advisory panel members to the board for approval, and uh, those, uh, the nominees uh, and their resumes will be posted in the staff report for next week, so you'll be able to look at those in advance as well. A quick reminder about design guidelines. We won't talk as in-depth as last time, but it is a document that guides development projects and public space improvements in the downtown Silver Spring plan area. It'll be a tool for many people, the applicants and the property owners, the regulatory team and the design advisory panel, the DAP, when reviewing proposed development projects, and it will be publicly available on our website so the community can understand more about the vision for downtown Silver Spring. As we discussed last time, of course, when the regulatory team presents projects, they summarize often you know, what the DAP said, and they bring the design guidelines to the board, so in that way, it's also a reference for the planning board as well. Here is an outline of the design guidelines, uh, three main sections divided into a bunch of subsections. We're going to highlight items from these subsections that we did not discuss last time, sort of to add to the board's exposure to items in the guidelines. But of course, we're here to answer questions about any part of the draft. In the introduction to the design guidelines, we discuss uh, the DAP, which we'll talk about um, next week, and we discuss the, uh, the inherent flexibility in the design guidelines. And it is important to highlight that despite the fact that it's a 100-page document, it is intended to be flexible. While the zoning ordinance does state that new development needs to demonstrate substantial conformance 
with the sector plan and any guidelines that implement the plan. The design guidelines are inherently more flexible than the master or sector plan. They can be revised by a planning board action without needing to go to any other um, body, and you don't need to reopen the plan to do that. They are intended to accompany and clarify the plan, but they do not and cannot address every single site condition within a plan area. Development projects will be evaluated as to whether or not they comply with the intent of the guidelines. First and foremost, context and site conditions are taken into account in every case. The guidelines help to provide predictability for applicants, but they're not intended to preclude creativity or unexpected design solutions. As we mentioned last time, and this is just as introduction to the next piece, uh, since 2021, the street design in the county is guided by the Montgomery County Complete Streets Design Guide, which was jointly authored by the Planning Department and Montgomery County Department of Transportation. So in the guidelines, the way we apply that is by defining for each street the active zone and the street zone as defined uh, broadly in the Complete Streets Design Guide and looking at the elements that make up those zones. For the design guidelines, it's the active zone that is important because that is the space between the curb and the face of the building. And the way we use these uh, diagrammatic street sections that you saw in the design guidelines is to basically do two things. A, to determine where the building is located relative to the curb and to let the applicant know what active zone elements they have to provide for the frontage improvements based on that street type and that site. So obviously for each street type, it's a little bit different and there's dimension ranges for all the elements so you can fit them into your street as needed. Um, we have tested lots of them and they seem to be working so far internally as we went through and wrote the guidelines. Um, but of course, if there's a particular constrained site or unusual site um, elements that make it difficult for one reason or another to completely meet those dimension uh, ranges, those are again recommendations and the guidelines provide the flexibility to look at a case-by-case -case basis and adjust as needed. Um, so that is really what the street sections are, and, and that information is going to be used for. Um, the, we, we show you the whole street to give you the context so you understand, but we're really just focused on that curb to building space. <clears throat> just to talk about the green loop again, which we touched on last time for a minute, the sector plan recommend, recommends the implementation of the green loop, which is a network of green resilient streets that connect the neighborhoods of the downtown. Um, and they're in a loop because of the way downtown Silver Spring is organized and the lack of grid across the, the rail. They actually focus on, they're focused on sort of the main spines of many of the districts. So I think I didn't really touch on this last time, but I want to just explain for a minute. You, these streets are the main streets of the Fenton Village District. It takes you up into the Ellsworth District, downtown North, and South Silver Spring. Those are sort of um, some of the biggest districts in the plan, and these are streets are not the Georgia and Colesville primary streets that have the cars and the vehicles, but these are already the streets that are more pedestrian friendly, and we're trying to emphasize that rather than try and transform Georgia, which for many reasons would be um, harder to attain. We are looking to enhance streets that are already have a decent pedestrian network. So what the guidelines does is it reiterates the goals of the sector plan with regard to the green loop, but it also provides clear priorities uh, in terms of what's the most important on these streets. On that central loop, which is the thickest line in the middle of the plan, large canopy trees and stormwater management in the right-of-way are the most important things. So the guidelines recommend that where feasible, the buffers for those particular street sections be a little bit wider to accommodate those. But even in a situation where that might not be possible to achieve, let's say, eight feet instead of six feet, the guidelines still set up those bullet point priorities that apply to the streets that you should really try and achieve as much can be covered as possible on these streets and stormwater management where, uh, where it fits. So that's 
Go ahead. Put on your mic, please. Can you go back to the one before this, the picture of the? Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, <laughs> um, where are people parking? So you can see, well, so first of all, in the downtown, there are about right now 11,000 parking garage spaces, which exceeds the need. I mean, we don't ever hit capacity, even pre-COVID. So we, in a downtown, we generally encourage people, if they're going to come into the downtown with a car, to park in one of the parking garages. They are located all over the downtown. Uh, most things are pretty accessible from the parking garages. However, there are plenty of streets, and you can see that here on this street, that there is on-street parking. This is on-street parking. What we recommend in the guidelines is that every two or three spaces when you have on-street parking, if you can't fit a full additional buffer, and we are showing a pretty typical condition here, um, it is hard if you're going to have on-street parking. Not many streets have the right-of-way to accommodate a full six-foot buffer next to the sidewalk and another full one in between the bike lane and, and the parking lane. And so we have sort of an integrated parking lane buffer. And you can see that here, right? You've got the car. These are parking spaces where this car is, and you can see those little, like, indicators here that indicates in this di in the way we've done the diagrams. And then every so often you have a bump out that might take up a parking space and that's where you've got a canopy tree. And that's our way of balancing the need for on-street parking and the need for um, cool streets uh, and, you know, an additional canopy tree coverage in the downtown. So the, so the um, tree, so, <laughs> yeah. so basically the, uh, the little bump outs for the trees will be taking up will be occupying parking spaces. Um, on different streets, it works out differently. It really depends. It's sort of a site-specific thing. If you are developing a project and that's your front, that's the front-end requirement or recommendation and your thing, you have to sort of look at where the on-street parking is today, what's interrupting it. We don't, it's, most blocks have something interrupting it, a bump out for a crossing or something, and then figure out what the idea, the concept is to get some tree integrated into that parking, it doesn't mean it will take up a whole parking space. Right, no, I'm totally in favor yeah. of trees, okay, but I also think trees and car, cars can potentially coexist. So, um, so because on this particular, um, this particular diagram really reminds me of what um, F Street DC downtown used to look like. This is almost exactly what F Street looked like, like, 50 years ago, you know, um, or more. Um, but here's the thing. Um, I'm all in favor of us or of the, the planning function being to create um, what is better, right, um, and, and what is future-focused. Um, but, but I really believe we can – I believe that can be done while also understanding who people are and how they live right now. You know, I mean, there are a lot of folks who just cannot, will not. Um, really, it's, it's not feasible for them to park in a parking garage and then go tra-la-la -la through downtown Silver Spring. Um, you know, <clears throat> if you're 80 years old and you just want to go one store, Mm -hmm. You want to park in front of the store. You don't want somebody to tell you you got to walk two blocks, and then because guess what, you won't be going back. You won't be going back. You know this is this is not a a thing for you that is functional. And and I say all that to say, or if, or if you 
You know, if you're you're a mother with a two year old, you just want to go to that one store and get that kid and come on out. I say all that to say this. This is lovely if you are um, active and able-bodied and uh, plan to stay a while. Okay, if if you don't if if your life doesn't meet those criteria, this is this really means you don't go. This this becomes this becomes a barrier. And and I think there's there has to be a way that um, that parking that um, that on street parking is considered more because there are a lot of people who really cannot um, enjoy the amenities of downtown Silver Spring without having parking that's closer to where they need to be. You know, they, they, they can't just, they can't, they can't go walk in a couple blocks. And, and are, I, are I just there, need that considered. Are there, are there streets in the plan where you plan on reintroducing or adding to on-street parking? Well, so, so can, can I just interject? So I, I think we, uh, Commissioner Mansa, we've heard that concern not only from residents, but also from, uh, for also from retailers, particularly on Fenton Street, right? They want people who are hopping in to get their shoes or to whatever. They want to be able to have that that short-term parking. Yeah. Um, and so we, we definitely hear that. I think this is, you know, this diagram is showing an idealized situation. In practice, uh, there is a division of uh, the the parking um, the parking lot district at DOT and the right-of-way folks at the Department of Permitting Services who actually control the parking. So these guidelines really, you know, they go up to the right-of-way if a development application is making frontage improvements, but it's really up to the curb. So anything that happens to the parking of the parking lane is generally going to be a CIP project. Um, but I know that DOT is, is sensitive to the things that you're saying, the community and retailers. So we absolutely hear it. Um, and when it's implemented, it's implemented when the, the when they're implemented on a block or whatever. It, there's an extensive community process, and those things are taken into account. So this is more of an idealized situation than sort of each project is going to be taking part. Oh no, I understand. I understand that, and I appreciate that. I just think it's really important for for somebody, maybe me, to say that 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 the interests of of these groups have to be taken into consideration and and you've you know responded to it very well but you know in case anybody else is out there in the world and looks at this and say well where i'm supposed to park they need their answer thank you i'm um, also add that we didn't obviously put all the images here but there is another image that shows how we retain um we we're trying to retain the entry parking on most streets where it is uh, and if we are adding a bike lane, then yes, we still keep the parking and we have this like smaller kind of buffer that's not planted, but that way we can accommodate the bike master plan's requirements for a bike lane, but also not lose the parking, particularly on the retail streets, we pay attention. But to your question, um, Chair, we're no, we did not necessarily propose to add on-street parking, but we did sort of explain why it's, it's okay. good. It serves a lot of purposes. It's also sort of a buffer for bikes, especially in this situation um, and, and pedestrians on some streets, like on the larger streets with more traffic, and it provides access to the retail establishments in particular. So we are mindful of that, which is why we didn't just 
We don't show just taking out the parking lanes. We realize that's not practical. It's not a good service for the downtown. It's not good. Um, it's not a good street section if you do that everywhere. So we are trying to like balance those desires. Yep. Okay. Go ahead. So we're going to go into here. So something we didn't get into last time, but I want to emphasize here. So one of the major sector plan recommendations from an environmental perspective is reducing the heat island effect in the downtown. And just for, for a very brief line on that, um, lots of studies, including our own study for the sector plan, have shown that downtowns are hotter than the surrounding areas, right? They have a lot more impervious surfaces. They have a lot uh, more materials that absorb heat. And so particularly in the summer months, it's significantly hotter. That's bad for people. It's bad for plants. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for a lot of things. So we, have, we focused on that a lot in the downtown because it was a downtown plan. So that was sort of a a problem that goes above the things that we always do anyway that are required at this point from an environmental perspective. So we looked at a few um, strategies that I'm just going to highlight here that we talk about in the guidelines in particular that support that sector plan recommendation. Uh, one thing we did was, an, uh, we actually had a um, Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments grant to explore cool streets with a consultant. We did that. We pulled some of the takeaways from there into the design guidelines, talking about in addition, you know, to trees, which is the obvious one that we were doing anyway, what else can we do to cool the streets? And, and we have some recommendations about things to consider in particular areas. I think particularly when you've got site design that has a lot of hardscape, which while we will be looking to avoid that, sometimes it's necessary. And then that's where some of these recommendations, thinking about cooling some of those areas in the future. We also look, uh, talk about how to provide those canopy trees when you only have a six-foot spot. In the downtown, we really need trees that provide shade, that will last, that will not get planted and just die off. And there are systems specifically designed. This is something that was mentioned uh, in the Silver Spring Streetscape Standards, and we want to bring it forward into the guidelines because it is something that should be considered for downtown streets, and it's, become, it's increasingly used in cities. It's just this cell system that goes under the ground that allows the roots to grow even though they're not uh, in the plant. As you can see here, you know, that little planted area is very small, but the roots are able to get big, and that's um, pretty cool technology that we have available to us today. And talk about the green roof systems that are available. The uh, guidelines really recommend intensive green roofs, uh, although any green roofs will, would meet the requirement in the uh, sector plan to uh, have, you know, one of a variety of energy um, sort of responsible strategies on your roof. But the reason why we focus on intensive green roofs in the design guidelines is because, A, they treat a much larger quantity of stormwater, which can be helpful for many, many reasons. And they allow an opportunity to actually grow things on the roof, something else we mentioned in the sector plan um, in our food security section. So these are just examples of, again, the, what the design guidelines does, which is to provide you know, uh, recommendations or encourage certain practices that will support the goals in the sector plan, sector plan being more high level and the guidelines getting into, um, you know, there's obviously many other strategies that could support the sector plan goal, and the guidelines acknowledges that and just mentions ones that we think uh, might work well in downtown Silver Spring. So from the building form and design section, we did look at this diagram last time, and happy to answer any questions on it. These are the basic building block components um, that help us describe buildings that uh, we will see in the downtown, whether they're low, mid, and high. And now I want to show you just two precedent examples that, uh, so it's a little bit easier maybe to understand what we're talking about. The left example is a high-rise building in Philadelphia, and the right example is a mid-rise building um, in Columbus, Ohio. So in both of these, you can see that there is a base, and by base it means that, you know, 
lower massing of the building. Um, they're treated differently in the different buildings. In the high-rise building, it's a very typical base setback tower, and then really interesting treatment at the top, which is something that we talk about. Lots of ways to do this here. They've varied the massing and then even treated uh, that really upper level quite differently. So you have this um, interesting top. But if you look even at the mid-rise building, uh, you can see the same principles applied, even though it takes a very different form, and you don't need to have um, a setback all over the place. You've got a different treatment at the pedestrian level, like the guidelines talk about, different, you know, different color uh, or change of material, lots of transparency, balconies facing the street. And then as you move up the building towards the top, you can see just some architectural detailing. It's not, um, it's not a lot, but it's enough to give it really nice finish and where you really see the order of the building and understand how it fits in um, to the context. So those are just, two just a question really here. Could yes. the Guggenheim Museum be approved under our guidelines? Yeah, so that's, I mean, I think absolutely. I think that a lot of what we provide the guidelines for is what we would say the stuff that we expect to see the most of, which in this case is going to be probably residential, right? And then that's why we focus so much on how to make that active ground floor, even if you don't have retail, just responding to what the development patterns have been. Civic buildings, I think, are an entirely different category and if they were providing I think we would still want to see ground level interaction so from that perspective I think there'll be a question but I think it'd be something that the DAP would talk about in very the, very little ground yes I agree <laughs> um, I think though from the that's part of where the DAP comes in and the discussion about how does a certain building contribute to the overall design and context of Silver Spring how does it contribute to that particular block that site what needs is it meeting how is it serving the community I think all of those things you know if someone wanted to put a uh a, um, you know, world-famous art museum in Silver Spring, I think we would take it. <laughs> so, But also, at, at, at the same time, and I didn't identify myself before, for the record, Elza Heisel-McCoy, Chief Down County Planning, you don't want every building on a block to be the Guggenheim. So we, the, the, the guidelines that we have make sure that the soldier buildings are, are good neighbors. I mean, the reason the Guggenheim works is because every other block on the building on the block follows the rules of being fronting to the street exactly yeah. and it makes it unusual and set back da, 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 da. but it's the oddball you have to be capable of uh, approving mm -hmm. as well and that's what we talked about in the beginning you know the guidelines provide that predictability for 99% of the applicants. And then if you have something really unusual, that's why one of, the, one of the good things about the DAP, right? They can discuss that. If we can talk about it, bring it here. There's a lot of people involved. It's not just checking the boxes. That's not how we, you know, that's how we, done, how we did the design review. So um, I think that, that flexibility is certainly, certainly in here. And, Thank you, know. you. It's my only trick questions. Um, now I'm going to let Christina talk a little bit more about how the Parks and Public Spaces section is organized in the guidelines. Good afternoon, chairs and commissioners. For the record, Christina Sasaki, Park Planner in the Park Planning Stewardship Division. Uh, as I mentioned in our last session, uh, all proposed, since 2019, all proposed parks and public spaces in this plan will be guided by the Energized Public Space uh, Design Guidelines. You know, it's a separate guideline that, you know, we're going to be using in all sector plans. And the document pretty much guides the design of the system of parks and public spaces within the denser areas of the county, which includes the Silver Spring area. So 
all the recommendations that are made in this document for the Silver Spring Design Guidelines, they were already approved during the sector plan uh, process, but we reorganize uh, the recommendations into the design elements, and I'm going to show a couple of examples um, to facilitate and to guide the design of each proposed park in the Silver Spring. So the guidelines report, in terms of the content, they provide three major chapters. They, they have the design principles, the area-wide design guidelines, meaning, you know, every single park and public space will follow these guidelines. And then they have the design elements by park type. You know, we have all parks uh, as being urban parks, but we have some subtypes. So the three overall design uh, principles that I mentioned last time are the access and connectivity. Uh, the park should feel open and welcoming to all. Uh, the sense of community, the park should celebrate community identity, value, pride, and social gathering. And urban ecology, the park should support social and environmental well-being and encourage the stewardship and responsible interaction with our natural habitat. So as presented in our last session, the design of these public spaces should be considered through the lens of these five area-wide design guidelines that you see on the screen. Uh, and they will be, you know, evaluated during the design process. So um, I'm going to just jump into an example, you know. So, for instance, if when we talk about place, the idea of uh, celebrating, incorporating a community identity. So the public spaces, they will bring economic and social value to their surrounding communities through people's interactions and also enhancement of their identity. So in this case, we will look at the topics of features under these design guidelines. Um, then they're going to have to be designed to integrate the system with clear circulation, defined spaces, and then links to the physical, historic, culture, and natural features of this site in order to create this unique sense of place. Uh, the largest public park in the study area is Jesse Blair Park. We have some images of the historic house and also the sort of the, the natural beauty of the park as well. And the park is designated in the master plan for historic preservation. So the design of its features, the signage, public art, historic and natural re, uh, features during the renovation that we are in the process right now will be really critical uh, to be as part of our checklist. You know, are we doing the due diligence to this uh, historic park? Uh, and we are now uh, in the process of selecting a consultant in order to do our facility plan for this project. So another thing that we mentioned last time is that all this system of proposed parks and public spaces, they fall within the urban park type. Uh, and then they all going to re be responding to the five design elements that are listed here. You know, the function, main program, key features, the site placement, and the size. So there is a combination of public and privately owned. So all privately owned public spaces will also follow these guidelines. So that's something that I want to highlight it. Um, and then the proposed green loops and connectors that Atara mentioned in the beginning, they would tie all these spaces together, the privately owned and the public owned. So let's look at an example of the proposed South Silver Spring, how these design elements were applied. You know, as you can see here, we determine which area based on the district. Uh, the main program, we did an analysis, you know, we were lacking active recreation in the Silver Spring area, especially in the South Silver Spring. So we are proposing a couple of uh, key features uh, that focus on this uh, active recreation and the idea of bringing people together. And then the facility placement, you know, we are talking about a true block connection between the parking lot and also East-West Highway. So we want to make sure that 
when we are designing this uh, park that all these design elements are checked in terms of our responsibility to uh, respond to the recommendations of the sector plan. So another example that I want to give is an application of the design guidelines on a private-owned uh, public space. So if we go to uh, our next slide, if we focus on the guidelines of variety, you know, this is an example of the downtown north of uh, POPs, the private-owned public space that we're going to be providing. So like the uh, South Silver Spring that is public-owned, they will follow the, these guidelines. And we want to especially uh, focus on access and safety, but also the need to really provide more than just one experience. In our existing conditions for the Silver Spring, we, we identify in you know, a lot of these pops, they are just um, decorative sculpture with a bench. So we want something more to give to the community. So we want to encourage to have multiple experience in the same place. So that's something that we want to make sure that we have in our guidelines. Um, and that concludes our presentation in parks and public spaces. Um, next. Well, can I ask you a question on the minimum size routine? Yeah. And I only say this because I don't know the underlying parcel sizes. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're going to get a quarter acre site and want a half acre park. Um, you know, I don't know um, uh, how uh, it will be implemented when you have parcels that are small and you're asking for minimum 0.5. So I think one thing that we should explain, and I don't remember if actually if we explained this last time or not, the sector, I think we did, but I'll, this will help clarify, I think. The sector, projects in the downtown Silver that come in under the downtown Silver Spring overlay zone are not going to be meeting their public space requirement in the typical way in the zoning code. So they're not going to be coming in and providing the percent that the zoning code asks for. We said we don't want those kind of spaces in downtown Silver Spring, and so we've this plan that we have here, this is a plan, all those little different symbols are different open types of open space based on program, but that's all the open spaces we're recommending so that we can get more consolidated, larger open spaces. So that downtown north park that we just looked at, that's not a typology. We're actually recommending that for a particular parcel. It's a publicly owned, so parcel owned by MCDOT that has a huge parking garage on it, which is big enough to become development site and park. So we're, the way it's written in the overlay zone text is that if you are developing a parcel that has an open space recommended on a sector, in the sector plan, then you have to provide that as part of your development proposal. And if you are developing a, a property that does not have, then your open space requirement, um, you work with parks and they figure out how, you know, based on a, a calculation that they have as to how much you should donate to the nearest public space that's being developed in your district. And so that way, that part that Christina was just talking about, we know we can get a half an acre because the site's enormous. It's this massive parking garage that crosses over like what would be four sites and regular parcel size. It's just so, the lawyer and me trying to yeah, avoid it. No, and we were, we were told, and we were sort of, urge in the sector plan to provide a minimum. Um, so that would give some guidance. And you know, in many of these cases, some of the POPs are very small, and therefore that's because they're recommended in, sp in spots that we thought they'd be best, but the parcel they're on is not particularly big. And some of them are recommended on these much larger 
spaces, some of which are publicly owned, that can accommodate, should they be redeveloped, a multiple, multiple things, buildings, parks, other through block connections, and so forth. Um, so I think, so it's not, we're not, we're talking about an actual spot on the plan, not a like typology for the district, if that makes sense. Yeah, and we associate these typologies during the sector plan on purpose, you know, we sat down and we say, where are the sites that can be built up? How much green space it can be offered? So we knew, because we have a park uh, typology and we have minimums and maximums and ideal size, so we say, we're not going to be proposing uh, civic green in this location because we know, realistic, uh, the development is not going to be able to provide something of that big. So at that specific small area, we say, well, let's put something smaller, pocket green, can be complementary to an adjacent side that we knew we had the, cap the capability of being something bigger. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to move on. So um, as we talked about last time, I think as everyone now is familiar, the plan areas divide into districts. And last time we talked about how we had a handful of district sites that we were going to focus on in the guidelines, and now I'm going to take you through um, two of those just to give an example of you know, here, these the two red sites in on the map. So one of them is, uh, they're both park and garage sites, as many of our large sites that we focus on in the guidelines are, which speaks to the fact that there are many standalone parking garages in Silver Spring, and we hope to see, you know, a better future for those parking garages uh, during the life of this plan. So this is the Bonifant-Dixon garage, which crosses over Bonifant Street, and this is the Cameron garage, and we'll look at both of those did, sites. Did the... Uh the parking authority comment on our plan? Well, they we worked with them and identified, you know, we, there are some parking garages we're not recommending as development sites because those are either super well utilized, really well placed, or perhaps they're screened in some way, or they have ground floor retail, like the one on Ellsworth opposite Veterans Plaza. Um, the Bonifant Dixon site, the one I'm about to show you, uh, MCDOT tried, to, they, they did in the past already express interest in redeveloping that site at various times. Um, that was their... They had, they had, that was one of their number one sites. We, we didn't have to ask twice if we could include that as an opportunity site. Of course, in all of these, and we say this in the sector plan quite clearly, there'll be replacement parking provided. But for example, the Bonifant Dixon garage has 1,600 spaces. And even pre-COVID, they were only maxing out at about 7,800 parkers, if I remember the data correctly from our original existing conditions data. So that does speak to like an excess of parking. And it's in the Ripley district, a district which you know, many years ago was nothing, but now really is becoming a popular residential district with new construction and brand new building that's, you know, um, and, and more opportunity sites coming up. So that is probably one of our, you know, number one sites we'd like to see redeveloped, not to mention the proximity to the transit center. So we're going to talk about all that and what the guidelines, um, how the guidelines sort of go a little bit deeper than the sector plan in terms of what we'd like to see, what could be done, what the possibility and the potential for this site is in the future. So here we are, just to get everyone oriented, Transit Center, George Avenue running north-south, here's Wayne Avenue, um, this area is a little bit old, this little park right up here has pretty much been almost completed by the Parks Department. And so, of course, the Purple Line Station, this, this, this you know, end of the tracks right here, is where the Purple Line Station will be in the future, and the tracks will continue on Bonifant Street and go up off the aerial image and stop at the library. So right now, as I said, this uh, 1,600 and some space garage crosses over Bonifant, creating this condition, um, not quite what you'd want to see as a gateway condition when you get off um, the Purple Line. I think it's it's not maybe not the most welcoming spot. So uh, 
the sector plan and you know identifies this as an opportunity site made very few comments and then the guidelines sort of focus on what are some of the key things we'd like um, someone who's coming forward to redevelop this in some capacity what should they be thinking about so Bonifant and Dixon Avenue this intersection right here as a real gateway from the Purple Line Station, that when you get off here and you start coming down Bonifant, when you get to this first sort of, you know, sort of real urban intersection that you're experiencing it as like you're in downtown Silver Spring now, which is not quite how it feels today. Um, identifying Bonifant Street and really treating it like a real connection from the Purple Line to the center of the downtown with a real green pedestrian link. You know, the Purple Line condition I, who knows if, what it will be like in, in the end, but it is going to be, there's going to be a lot of trains coming and going on that street, so you want to make sure you have a good pedestrian area. There's not going to be a lot of car traffic the way the current plans are for the Purple Line, so the pedestrian um, environment's even even more important because it's going to be mostly be pedestrians and trains. Here are two, so this garage is so big that it will create three sites if it's really taken down. You've got a really large site here on the north of Bonifant, a somewhat smaller site, but still pretty comparable actually to the other sites in the Ripley district, very similar size in terms of those residential properties. And then you have this small site here, it's hard to see it, people don't realize, but this piece, it goes over Dixon and this piece is also part of the garage. And the sector plan recommends that for like a really, for like a sort of a small um, park with some active recreation. So that, uh, these are sort of some of the, the guidelines for this area and we have this rendering that was created for us um, in collaboration with uh, DIG, which is a rendering firm that used to be in DC and is now out of California. Again, all the architecture in here is placeholder. It's completely illustrative for the, for the new buildings. Of course, this is an existing building and so is this and this, but this really gives you a sense of how things could be um, in this area. I think the public realm completely transformed Dixon Street with bike lanes and you know regular sidewalks and trees feels like a street that you'd wanna be on. Um, you can see this, uh, Nice green connection on the south side here, sort of a wider sidewalk with more plantings and a, and a you know, sort of a linear park feel coming from the train station. And you can get a glimpse into what it might be like if we had a sort of a cool little park there with some basketball and maybe some ping pong tables or some other active stuff happening. It's all illustrative, it's all a suggestion, but it's meant to convey the possibility, particularly of the transformation of the pelvic realm in this area. Um, we have not necessarily done these kind of renderings before, and we were super excited by the opportunity to really try and envision what, what could be, um, you know, more so than just uh, um, talking about it and writing, writing recommendations. So the next site to talk about is the, another parking garage site in downtown North. This parking garage today is certainly better utilized than the other one. However, um, it is large, it is freestanding. This is how it looks on the street. Um, and this particular area of downtown North is also undergoing a transformation of sorts right now. You have this um, Elizabeth Square project going up, which will include uh, a, real, a large amount of affordable housing and a new rec center, something that to Silver Spring does not have, a county rec center with a pool. So that's gotten people in this area and actually in the whole downtown pretty excited. Um, we talked about that a lot during the plan. There are some other development projects proposed around here. And of course, at the other end of Cameron Street, you have the whole United Therapeutics Complex, um, which you know uh, continues, to, continues to grow. So this street of Cameron Street, in the future, we really envision as a key spine. And so thinking about this garage as a potential redevelopment site, how to make this more integrated into the urban um, fabric here is something that the sector plan was focused on. And so the, guide, the design guidelines for this site um, the, 
The sector plan, just to recap for a second, says when if this gets redeveloped, actually you split the site into two so you don't have such a long street wall of building, which we do try and um, avoid, and get First Street to come through there. Interestingly, the garage itself has a driveway that sort of does that already. It is like set up for this. Right now, First Street, it would connect through here so you'd have a normal street grid, two opportunity sites, and that downtown North Park that Christina was talking about before. And so this is how that gets recommended. So what are some things to think about here according to the guidelines? The south part of Cameron is uh, very low rise. You've got townhouses here and then low rise retail on the other side. And so the guidelines, you know, the townhouses are certainly not going anywhere. So the guidelines say, you know, we need the bases of those buildings to really, really take that into context. So we have a good relationship across the street um, because it's kind of an unusual thing to have that in the downtown, but that's something we want to respond to. Um, Want to make sure that the building that's adjacent to the park really engages with the park, has not have a blank wall next to the park, but sort of is able to turn the corner in some way, whether that's ground floor spaces or roof terraces or balconies that respond to the park. Uh, really would encourage the loading and the service to be off of First Street. And, you know, obviously we always want alleys if you can get it, but if that's not possible to not put it on Cameron, because we're really envisioning Cameron as the main street here and First Street as the side street in this particular part of the downtown. Uh, and also in, you know, the the... Flip of that is making sure that the retail entrances are either on Cameron or close to the Cameron first intersection. So those are the kind of guidelines. We, we have a few other sites that um, I won't talk about today, but you'll see the same kinds of things. We're talking about adjacencies. We're talking about specific context issues that might be. We do not talk about architecture or any of those other things. The mass and guy, the guidelines apply to all the sites, and that's, that's as, you know, we're not going to, we, we really want to see creativity. We don't have other um, it's really all about adjacencies and entrances, things to think about that are particular. And here's a rendering from the same company of a possible way this site could be, these sites could be reimagined. Um, this is a protected intersection here, which is how uh, two intersections with bike lanes that come together would be, would be realized um, according to DOT, and that's exciting to see. We only have a few in the downtown right now. Here are the existing townhouses. You can see how the base of this building in particular is really trying to respond to the townhouses from, from like a massing perspective. Got a neighborhood serving retail here with the entrance on the corner. Um, you can see some of those guidelines that we've been talking about reflected here. Um, and so that's... Uh, the last exciting image I'm going to show today. But if you look in the guidelines, right, there's a few more sites with these types of renderings. We didn't want to go through all of them, but happy to answer questions about any or talk about any of those in specific. Um, I was going to talk a bit about engagement. I don't know if you have any questions up until now. Okay. So um, we were asked about engagement last time, so we wanted to come back and give an update. Uh, one thing, um, you know, we talked in all of our wide-ranging stakeholder conversations during the sector plan, people would always bring up design, uh, and we would explain that that would be what the design guidelines are for, and so we had took a lot of the concepts we spoke about um, forward into these design guidelines. We heard a lot of feedback about how the Bethesda design guidelines were working, and that was good because we get to use those as a bit of a guide when we were writing those. So that's sort of for something that happened throughout the sector plan process. Um, and, and that was helpful just in knowing where we were going with the design guidelines from back then. We did have a presentation um, to NAOP, to uh, the real estate community, uh, two weeks ago um, on the design guidelines. And we also are presenting next week on Tuesday. We're going to the Silver Spring Urban District Advisory Committee uh, with the guidelines to give them an update as we bring them along on everything that we do. We did send out an e-letter, <clears throat> as we do every time we 
do anything to tell the community, to the Silver Spring community that signed up for our e-letter during the master plan. It's at least 500 people, if not more by now. And we included the link to the guidelines that were posted on the planning board um, website. And we are going to be sending another one of those either at the end of the day today or tomorrow, um, <clears throat> talking about uh, the DAP nominees and also that there'll be public comment opportunity available next week at the planning board for the design guidelines. So um, just to let people know and you know, give them the link again. So um, that's, that's what we've done so far on that. And that concludes my presentation. So happy to take any additional questions or comments on the guidelines. Um, yeah, thank you. Commissioners? Um, just wondering if you've uh, contacted the Silver Spring Advisory Board, which is different than the urban, than the um, than the uh, Silver Spring Board that you had noted. Um, we contacted the Regional Services Center and asked yes. who they wanted us to present to, and they said they wanted us to come to the Silver Spring Urban District Advisory Committee. I don't think we're also going to the Citizens Advisory Board, but we told yeah. them we could. Um, I think they weren't sure if we could fit on the agenda, but we can always go to them yeah, I would, subsequently. That would be good to talk to the Citizens Advisory. And also, you know, I don't know what kind of little, um, you know, um, graphic you, you, you have um, to, um, uh, to uh, allow people to, uh, to inform people about the uh, January 26th public comment. But it would probably, it, it might be good to have the Regional Service Center um, put that graphic on the, uh, the big old neon board that's up there, because they're the ones who control the big old neon board. Um, and, and, you know, then you would, um, you would definitely get um, um, <coughs> probably people who you normally would not hear from. Because um, that's, you know, every, everybody, in there, everybody who goes to the movies sees that board, you know. Yes, we took advantage of the board during the sector plan process a few times. <clears throat> Usually the regional services folks will pull any key thing from our e-letters because they're on the list and included in their long weekly email. Um, but we did remind them to include this in there as well. So hopefully that usually goes out Friday. So hopefully that'll, hopefully that'll be in there too. And I, I, I would also add that, you know, as this plan gets implemented, the application review is an entirely public process. The design review... Um, from the design advisory panel. Uh, those are all uh, broadcast. Members of the public can attend and participate and contribute comments in those. So in addition to sort of the outreach and engagement we did as part of the plan and what we're doing now with the guidelines, as this plan is rolled out, there will be ample opportunities. It's very important to us. Uh, I see no other commissioners. I, I will note that I had talked to staff about some editorial changes that I had. Um, I, I don't feel a need to go into all of them, but one was a, to structure the guidelines in a uh, in a common manner, so that you said that the subject of the guideline, uh, what should happen to that subject, min uh, uh, I don't know, the base of the building should be minimized, whatever you want to say. I'm, I can't even think of a guideline right now. Um, uh, but but to put it in that form so that it's a common form through through all the requirements, I asked them to review some key words to the extent they had the word maximum. Think about it because it's almost an impossible standard uh, to the to the um, 
to the uh, word required. These are guidelines. If it's required by the planning board, make sure we know that, that it's coming from the planning board where the requirement is because these are guidelines. Um, uh, I, I asked them to utilize the word use instead of utilize, but I ask that all the time. Um, uh, I asked them to review uh, the use of the word however, uh, because a lot of times in, in their sentence structure, it didn't look to me like it deserved a however. There was really two thoughts going on, which are fine, but I, 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 I'm just looking at word confusion. Um, uh, so I did give those kinds of uh, guidance to staff, and I just wanted to not surprise anybody when we got a, a draft that uh, w was changed in that regard. Um, anybody else have anything to say before we see this again with, uh, with public comment and uh, for next week? Wow. Um, okay. Thank you very much. A very good presentation, very clear, on point, and did a great job with questions, I thought. Thank you.
Good afternoon. This is the January 19th, 2023 session of the Planning Board. Uh, if it's cloudy where you are, we welcome you to downtown Wheaton, where it's beautiful all the time. Uh, right now, we're going to do item number nine, uh, the, the Warrior Canine Connection Headquarters Mandatory Referral. Uh, I'll turn it over to staff. Yeah, thank you for the record, Patrick Butler. Uh, we have with us today uh, Mark Beal, Doug Johnson, uh, stepping in for a teammate uh, who is not able to make it today. Um, and uh, this this is a pretty straightforward item. I'm pretty sure you could see from the, the staff report. Um, uh, with that, we can answer any questions you have, and I'll let Mark take it away with the presentation. I click yes. <laughs> Good afternoon, Mark Beal for the record. Uh, I bring to you a mandatory referral for Warrior Canine Connection Headquarters. Um, the mandatory referral number is MR2023-001. The property is located at 14934 Schaefer Road in Boyds, Maryland. Uh, the, as you can see in this picture, the property partially partial property, it's kind of big, is outlined in the black dotted lines. We've got Schaefer Road and the Soccerplex slash South Germantown Rec Center at the Rec Park at the north side. Germantown Road goes down to the west, east side. The south side actually kind of goes off the map, but that's Maryland, 120, or Maryland 28, Darnstown Road. And over here we have White Ground Road over to the west side. The property is actually in the uh, 1980 Preservation of Agricultural and Rural Open Space Master Plan, also known as EROS. I may refer to it as that sometimes. The property is a little over 2,300 acres. Um, it's state-owned. It's part of the Seneca State Park. There is a 17-acre uh, area of lease that is specific for this. Um, this is the existing dairy barn, which we will discuss in a couple of slides later. Um, it is zoned AR, and this whole leasing area is about 2,700 feet from the closest street. <coughs> Excuse me. So with this proposal, we're looking at here's the existing dairy barn. They're um, adding on to it a little bit, but also renovating it. They're repaving some areas, creating some new paved areas, adding some ADA parking spaces. Um, I believe there's a cistern being added for fire protection. Um, and, and sorry, the office, there'll be offices and kennels in that new dairy barn. Sorry about that. Uh, here's some pictures of what it'll look like when we're done. Uh, again, this is in the uh, Eros Master Plan. The Eros Master Plan does not specifically call out this property, okay? Um, but it does say if you're in the AR zone, rural zones, you're to create um, agriculture uses, conservation areas to be able to create a buffer between the ag area of the county and the suburban area. So as you can see in this picture, we've got a lot of suburban area over to the northeast all the way down to the south side. And you can see all the farmland to the west side. So this is a nice little buffer between those, which is exactly what the master plan is asking for. Uh, this road is obviously on Schaefer Road, like I mentioned. Um, Schaefer Road is called out as a rustic road in the Eros Master Plan. Uh, no frontage improvements are required, and no Master Plan bikeway improvements are. Um, this portion is not part of the Master Plan bikeway. Uh, it is in compliance with Chapter 22A, and they are exempt from Article 2. 
and we the proposed developments uh, substantially conforms to the master plan, complies with the environmental guidelines, and meets the requirements of Chapter 22A. We've not received any public correspondence with regards to this project, and staff, st staff makes recommendations of approval. With thank you, and the applicants here too. If you guys have any questions, <laughs> got to remember myself. Would the applicant like to say anything? It's early. Hi, I'm Ricky Ant, the founder and executive director of Warrior Canine Connection. I just wanted to say, um, you know, we're just we're really honored to be partnered with the state's Department of Natural Resources and their Warrior and Veteran Outreach Program to use this type of bucolic setting for its healing qualities um, and support veterans here in Montgomery County, Maryland, and beyond. Um, I just appreciate everyone's consideration and uh, support of what we're doing. Thank you. I'm amazed you didn't have ADA uh, parking spaces before, you know, for for your use. But it's good you're you're providing them with with this mandatory referral, um, Commissioner Hill. Yeah, I do have one, uh, maybe modification. I think there was a recommendation that said uh, tree cover was highly was recommended, and it would be around the barn and in the uh, stream shed. I wasn't quite clear where the stream was. Um, but having been to the site, it really struck me that if this isn't going to be an active agricultural use around that barn, some shade cover around that barn seems to me to be the priority for tree cover. Um, to, and just make it more pleasant, I think, for users to have a you know, shady place and that sort of thing. Um, if it was actively agricultural use, those could be a bit of an obstacle, um, which I think is why the condition exists the way it is now. But it seems to me that the stream corridor, if I'm thinking of the one that is kind of in the driveway, but you'll have to tell me that, um, is taking care of itself. And using a vegetative planting around the structure is probably is, is what I would like to recommend more. Go ahead. Yeah, I think we can... Uh, I think we can work with the applicant on that. Um, uh, I don't want to, I guess, uh, impede on any operational issues that may call, cause. So um, if there is area that won't impede with the, the, the operations but allow for planting, um, I think we can commit to working with you on that. Turn your mic on, please. Well, well let okay. me just. Uh, I, I said I think having some shade around trees around the barn makes sense to me, and as long as it doesn't impede any other operation, any other operations, I think that's a good suggestion. Right, but my 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 point's a little finer tuned than that, which is just on the recommendation that existed. I think we should be recommending shade around the structure as opposed to treatment of the of the stream shed, which I wasn't really clear where it was to begin with, and and seems like the lesser priority. I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, in, in general, uh, we do try to, you know, plant closer to streams to help with infiltration, yeah, cool, right. you know, that's, et cetera. So um, yeah. are, you, are you suggesting an either or, or uh, instead of, or could it be a little bit of both? I'm suggesting flipping maybe the priority that was expressed on that. That started with the stream buffer and then set around the building. I think around the building is the important part. Sure, sure. Okay. Just want to make sure from an environmental perspective that's not tripping anything. Yep. Yes, we can do that. And the applicant is okay with that change? Yes. Yes. Excellent. 
Okay, with with that amendment, do I hear a motion? Mr. Chairman, I move as soon as we get back to the number. I need the can you put up the number? I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, Mr. Chairman, I move that we approve the mandatory referral with with the recommendations and the um, um, conditions that have been described today on number MR2023001. Do I hear a second? Second. Second. With no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 And thank you for your work. Uh, we appreciate you being in the county and, and helping out and happy to approve this type of uh, change. Uh, can, can I add a comment, which is I see this as a win-win-win. Um, it's an organization that has a great mission out there. We're not quite saving a historic structure, but we're preserving an agricultural structure that I think is quite significant with a sympathetic reuse. Um, and also giving this parcel uh, a real purpose um, going forward. And I think all those are great outcomes. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, your, your thoughts mean a lot. Thank you. With, with that, I believe we are adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. -bye.